Hello there. My name is Sam Fredrickson. And I'm Jason Moisoso. Together we are the hosts of the Not Alone podcast. We are a weekly show that focuses on the paranormal, the supernatural, the strange, and the unexplained. And we'd like to tell you today about Danver State Lunatic Hospital, or... As the it was Denver more insane asylum. Yeah, as it was more colloquially known, the Danver Insane Asylum. Tell me a little bit about it, Jason. So the asylum located in Danvers, Massachusetts, and it actually opened up in 1878 and was originally designed Gothic cathedral-esque structure. It doesn't look like a hospital. No, it it looks it's, like menacing. Yeah, just it to does. Be blunt. Yeah, and I mean. Yeah, we've talked about it once or twice on our show where, where Gothic cathedrals were designed to kind of scare people mm-hmm. in the church. So that gives me a, a different picture in my mind about Danvers. Danvers actually inspired several other pop culture things, mm-hmm. such as H.P. Lovecraft's Arkham Asil- uh, Sanitarium. Mm-hmm. And, that and then from that, later evolved and uh, inspired the Arkham Insane Asylum from Batman. Yeah. The unfortunate thing is that the Arkham Asylum housed the criminally insane and also the mentally ill, which mm-hmm. Danvers later became. Mm-hmm. But in its originality... Well, originally it, it's, it was very interesting. It was the, the state's way of saying the mentally ill need help and we're going to give them help here, which was not like a common thing for 1878. Oh, no. But, Mental health was absolutely at its infancy as far as treating it. Exactly. It had housing adequate for around 600 patients, and it was meant to be a high-intensity care facility simply for the mentally ill. And it was really one of the first of its kind. However, over the years, it was used by the state as more and more of a prison system, the criminally insane, as well as the severely mentally handicapped. Is What it comes down to meaning is that at its peak, this facility that was meant to house around 600 patients held over 2,000. And that's, oh my gosh. Yeah, that overcrowding led to some terrible, terrifying things. Oh yeah. They had frequent breakouts, but the creepiness of Danville really comes into the, the treatment of these, these patients slash prisoners. Now that the hospital is believed to be the birthplace of the prefrontal lobotomy, shock therapy, electroshock therapy was the standard there. Yeah. Very crude treatment of the mentally ill. Mm-hmm. The people who needed the most help at the time. The spookiness of Danvers and the urban legend component comes from some stories around the the area. There was one interview done with a woman who worked there for a time who recalled how even as late as the early 60s and 70s, there was a boy, a 15-year-old patient, who went missing for days, and they didn't find oh him my gosh. until they smelt him. Oh, no. His body was found in the heating ducts, and it had been oh. melted and and charred and stuck to the metal of the walls. They had to scrape him off. And there's also other rumors, darker rumors, about yeah. inmates going missing, and Ooh. especially young, attractive teenage girl inmates going missing. At this point as well, it is well accepted and, and known. You can actually go to the cemetery They no longer announced the death of inmates. Their families weren't notified, and their headstones had no name, no date of birth or death, but simply a number. 627, 628, 629. And that's what has made Danver one of the most chilling locations to this day. 
Have you heard the story of and written on the wall? And everyone blood. has the different stories of oh, this happened to my brother. This is telling brother. you stories of the old. Country. There was this girl. It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just a Story podcast. I'm Jake and I'm Sam and we're here to tell you a story. Each week we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again, what our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. I want to welcome all you maniacs back. Don't call them that. They're lunatics. Use the proper term. I apologize. Some of them may just be feeble-minded. Happens to the best of us. Happens to the best of us. Well, diagnoses aside, you all look perfectly lovely to me, and we here at Just a Story Podcast do not stigmatize mental illness. Everyone deals with everything, all the things, and we're proud of you for how well you've done, each and every one of you, your champions. You are the champions, my friends. Of the world. Of the world. It's true. But we want to welcome all of our fantastic listeners back. Um, We do want to encourage everybody to leave ratings and reviews on iTunes. It helps people find out about the show and know your weird obsession with us. Yes, it's a badge of honor to leave a rating and review as these fine individuals have done. So thank you, Vil Maldor and Barra Sarah and Jay Autumn. Who said, we cite our sources, exclamation point. Are you citing him as a source now? I am. So after you're done with your rating and reviews and you get your merit badge for that, you can head on over to a variety of platforms and check out Just a Story at all of our many locations nationwide, which include Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, all at Just a Story Pod. You can also check out our website, JustaStoryPod.com. There you'll find all of our sources. Which we cite. And all of the other information related to the show usually post videos, pictures, all kinds of other things. And on there, you will also find links to our merch store where you can purchase merchandise with various logos that Samantha has designed. It's what I do. And also you'll find a link to our Patreon page. That's what you do. If you want to. You can. It's a great way to help support the show. And you'll also get access to many episodes and other fun things. Now, there is one other way you can contact us, and that is the Urban Legend Hotline. Feel free to dial in to the Urban Legend Hotline. That number is 512-222-3375. So, Sam, back to the story at hand. The story at hand. There are lots of stories at hand. So many. Today, we are going to talk about the haunted, insane asylum. I have no problem believing that that's true. Just, like, flat out, first thing off the bat, if anywhere is going to make a ghost. Well, that's a good point. Because there are a lot of abandoned insane asylums in the country, in the United States. I blame Kennedy. He's not who you should blame. Not at all. And a lot of terrifying things happen there. We're definitely going to sort through that today. Wait, you mean ghosty terrifying or like when people were in them terrifying? Both. Best answer. (laughs) So just to kind of cite a few different fun ones, if you can call it fun. Uh, One would be the Danvers Asylum, also called the Danvers State Lunatic Asylum. Because they named things with class back in the day. And it was built in 1878 on the site of the original Salem Village. Making ghosts left and right here, people. Now, it has this very gothic exterior. Shocking. But also, inside, it has a very lovely 
originally. Inside of big wings, private rooms, open spaces. I mean, this is that moment in architecture where everything had that grand staircase in the entrance and right. everything was big open floor plans and kind of palatial layouts. See it at a lot of colleges and hospitals. Yeah, and Danvers was originally the site, the most modern treatment for all of these lunatics. So if you're a lunatic, your best case scenario is to end up in Danvers. Well, there are several locations. Oh, well, this was on the premiere list, though. Well, it started out that way. Okay. But as time goes by and funding goes down, it starts to house thousands and thousands of patients, many over what it should. So way over capacity then. And the care isn't compromised one tiny bit. Everyone is equally looked after it. Everyone's getting better all together as they sing Kumbaya in a circle. Good story. Sure. But Is that not, not what happened? No. Nah. Okay. And, you know, of course, sightings of abuse and other problems, and eventually it was shut down. Now, as with a lot of these asylums, ghost hunters are wont to go there. As you do. Residents and visitors have recorded full body apparitions, flickering lights, the sound of unexplained footsteps, and doors opening and closing on their own. Now, one other one is the Athens Lunatic Asylum in Ohio, and it opened in 1874 specializing in the treatment of the mentally and criminally insane. And it also started as a calm place for people to go and recover. But again, not long after, started having overcrowding, and you started getting some of these other cruel practices that we'll talk about today. One specific story that is very haunting and definitely will make a ghost is the one of Margaret Schilling. And this happened in December of 1978. It was a winter's day. And Margaret was a patient there, and she was playing hide-and-seek with the nurses. Now, supposedly, they got distracted and forgot about her. And in January of 1979... Yeah, that's not the same. That's that's later. That's a year. year. Her body was discovered by a maintenance worker. She was supposedly fully nude, with her clothes folded to the side of her. And also, supposedly, you can see an imprint of her body still where she was lying decades later why was she naked ghost undressed her i don't like that story and yet the nurse is getting distracted is like more fairy tale i guess like more folk taley but it seems like there's this hint that she was like taken away to be abused like somebody came and got her while she was hiding Definitely a possibility. And that's worse. That's so much worse. Now, another disturbing feature of this asylum is that all of the patients that died were buried in graves on site, but not with names, with numbers. When we start assigning people serial numbers, nothing good ever happens. It's not positive. Of course, the grave sites in the cemetery report to see a huge number of ghosts there and unexplained screaming of the dead at night. So another one is Pennhurst Asylum. It was opened in 1908 as a state school for the physically and mentally disabled, and by the end was housing more than 10,000 patients. How many was it supposed to house? Not 10,000? Not 10,000. Not 10,000, that's the answer. Now in the 70s, an expose came out about it, and then in 1986, it was shut down. Because people saw what was happening there. Right, and more and more people came out about abuse in the place. I think abuse happens so often at these places because it's an incredibly vulnerable population. And everyone's too distracted by the you know, huge numbers over capacity. No, definitely a factor. And also, you know, many ghost hunters have gone there and document spooky audio recordings, changes in temperature, unexplained movement of objects, EVPs saying things like, go away. I'd go away. I'll kill you. Why won't you leave? No, but really, bro. Why won't you leave? 
So, you know, all of these insane asylums, as they were called at the time, or lunatic asylums or state hospitals, they had so many different names. It's not surprising to see that they became haunted, at least in our minds. Now, if you are one that is a true believer. I know a few. He's looking at you, kid. Yeah. Then you can just look at the massive amount of negative energy in these places. Right. Like, I can't stand to walk into a a functioning hospital half the time. I don't like them. But if you look at it from, like, a folkloric standpoint, just a cultural standpoint, and you move away from those EVPs and ghosts and apparitions that you might see, which are frightening, even more frightening are the things that were done in these asylums. And the idea that normal human beings, respectable people, carry them out. Very true. So maybe it's not the ghost of the patients that we're worried about. Maybe it's the ghost of human nature's darker side. No, I definitely think so. And so the mentally ill have been a hard problem to tackle for many, many years since the dawn of humanity. Because at the beginning, they didn't know what was happening. They didn't know what was causing it. You know, now we can look back in hindsight and be aghast at some of the things they thought. Right. But they didn't have a clue what was going on. Do not share your coconuts with that dude. Do not. And we have been, as a human species, trying to figure out how to help these people for millennia and millennia. This goes back to the dawn of civilization. So I can't go back quite, quite to the dawn of civilization. Let's go back to the dawn of recorded history. That'll work. Let's take a moment to discuss Bimaristans. Or Bimaristans? Have your pick. This is the Persian word for hospital. It is a place or a house for the sick. And there were several that were described by European travelers who wrote about their wonder at the care that was provided there to the mentally ill. In 872, Aman ibn Tulan built a hospital in Cairo to provide care for the insane. And this was one that really got a lot of praise from everyone who saw it. Now, before we begin this wonderful journey and look at this wonderful treatment plan that was there, we should listen to Roy Porter, who cautions against idealizing the role of hospitals generally, stating that they were a drop in the ocean of a vast population that they had to serve, and their true function lay in highlighting ideals of compassion and bringing together the activities of medical professionals. But the key point, and this is going to be a key point, is someone was doing something. It's a low bar. It is a low bar, but it's the bar that is set. Because the other option was like chaining them up or like beating them to death. Or killing them, yes. yes. So they're not doing that. In some of the reading I've done about Bimaristans, there is an emphasis placed on caring for mentally ill people in the Quran. And there's this idea of communal responsibility for these people. Muslim physicians very early on realized that psychiatric and mental diseases required a special type of care and that a physician had to be acquainted with the disease with which the patient was suffering from. You couldn't just lump it all into one category and say they're all mad. There were specific things. They're starting to differentiate things. Right. Different mental illnesses. And interestingly, these facilities were also used to train medical students. As they are now. Yes. So medical medieval texts show that there were drugs used to treat mental illness, and they were usually vegetable-based, and they were purgatives, which is... Going to be on the toilet for a little while. Uh, sedatives. Going to be sleeping for a little while. And emetics. You're going to be on the toilet for a little while the other way. <laughs> And they also used fomentation of the head, which is applying a poultice, a soft, usually heated, and sometimes medicated mass 
spread on a cloth and applied to sores or other lesions to supply moist warmth and relieve pain or act as a counter irritant or antiseptic. Yeah, and those poultices are used throughout ancient civilization. Right. Interestingly enough, going back and looking at them, some of them were effective and did have antibiotic properties. So like whatever was in them or in the ointment Mm -hmm. smeared on them actually did have some medicinal property sometimes key minority of times key. <laughs> they also had baths and they did some bloodletting but a major part of treatment was cupping now apparently egyptians have been using cupping therapy since 1550 bc and it was used in chinese and middle eastern cultures as well now there is modern cupping right they had a little a minute a few years ago yeah you'd see it on like olympic swimmers or covered with the bruises from cupping and there is wet cupping and dry cupping in the olden days both types of cupping a therapist or whoever is administering the cups would have put a flammable substance such as alcohol herbs or paper in a cup and set it on fire and as the fire goes out the cup will be placed against your skin and the air inside the cup cools and creates a vacuum which causes your skin to rise and redden as your blood vessels expand and it's generally left in place for about three minutes now that's all that's done with dry cupping but in wet cupping there are tools used to make little nicks in the skin so that you bleed as your cup sits it's combining a little bleeding in there with it right just for good measure and people have kind of always believe that it just draws out bad stuff in your body just draws out the toxins clears you out but this practice had special significance within the muslim community it was known as al-hijama and it was an islamic medical practice and the word comes from the root al-haj which means sucking and according to the quran the best days to perform al-hijama were during the 17th and 19th and the 21st of the islamic lunar month it has a such a strong tie to this particular culture because it is believed that the prophet muhammad said indeed the best remedies you have is hijama and if there is something excellent to be used as a remedy than it is a drama. And it's also claimed that the prophet himself used cupping for his own ailments, including headaches, sprained ankle, detoxification, and hip pain. There's a list of things that hajama can be used to help, and they include but are not limited to constipation, diarrhea, back pain, headaches, obesity, fatigue, asthma, hypertension, gout, arthritis, rheumatic disease, and others. So it can be used for whatever, whatever anything. ails you. Anything. Cure for what ails you. So in the Hadith, Muhammad recounts his ascension and describes his encounter with an angel who asked him to educate his nation on the benefits of cupping. So it has a very prominent place in this culture. They also practiced bandaging or compression therapy, massages with various oils, and the application of compresses. Now the facilities themselves are interesting because they are as important architecturally as they are culturally. They were palatial in scale, and often there were fountains on the ground because people believed that the sound of bubbling or gargling water would have a calming effect on the lunatics. Still kind of does. Sleep machines. It's nice. I like a fountain. Who doesn't like a fountain? Assholes, that's who. Nice water feature. And there were wide bases around the fountains, and on these there would be lots of pots. And the pots would be filled with aromatics, generally basil. Now, I love the smell of basil, too. I do, too. The scent was believed to reach the brain. And today, research suggests that the basil scent can act as an antidepressant and a tranquilizer. And Pliny the Elder... He's always got something to say. He's got something to say. He believed that basil could cure epilepsy. How'd that work out for him? Uh, a little shaky on that. You want to stick with it? No, I don't. You want to stick I, with I, it? I retract that. I'm keeping it. Yeah, okay. 
There was also a stage for musicians, and many Arab doctors recommended music therapy, even at this time, as a treatment for melancholy. Ibn Butlan, a physician, said that the effect of a melody on a disturbed mind is like the effect of medicines on a sick body. They also paid storytellers a salary to read the Quran in the morning and in the evening. And they allowed the patients there to participate in ergotherapy, which included dancing, theatrical performance, and recitation. And interestingly enough, this form of Bamaristan was but one of many. There were different ones with specialized functions. There were institutions for leprosy. There were medical facilities within jails. And because of the significance of the pilgrimage to Mecca, medical missions were established to care for travelers and pilgrims. Sometimes medical units were employed to travel with wealthy families, but they nonetheless supported the road Bamaristans financially as part of their charity. There were also mobile Bamaristans that could be dispatched to isolated areas as need dictated. That's amazing. It's amazing to see how many of those things are still being used today. Right? They ruined something. Meanwhile, in Europe... Ancient Greece. So we get this fellow, Hippocrates. I've heard of him. I have his words tattooed on me. So Hippocrates was a 5th century BCE doctor, and he has a collection of writings, the Hippocratic Corpus, that became known to the Western world during the Renaissance. Now, he was one of the great physicians of ancient Greece. We still use the Hippocratic Oath a form of it to become oh, doctors right? right yeah for one of the first people that laid out like medical ethics in that way but also he wrote a lot about the humors i've heard of them so in one of his treaties the nature of man which was actually written by his student and son-in-law polybus he really clearly lays out the theory of the four humors innate in man saying the body of man contains blood phlegm yellow bile, and black bile. This is what constitutes the nature of the body. This is the cause of disease or good health. So what would make you diseased? Them being off, not in balance. Okay. So we must balance our our yellow bile, our black bile, our blood, and our phlegm. Must all be in balance. And if you have too much of any of them, you're just going to have all manner of problem. Right, depending on which one it was and what the combination was. Oh, so this is like science. Yeah, sure. You know, and in a way, it's tied to the empedoclean ideas of like the four elements, everything being made of the four elements. Okay. And also tied to things like ages and the seasons. And one thing, of course, we talk about with this is the ideas of melancholia. Which is a fantastic word. Right. So what do you think melancholic person would be? Melancholy, like a poet. That is true. That is what Aristotle would say. But what would Hippocrates say? Depressed and sad and brooding. Like I said, a poet. Right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I mean, they they definitely crossed over some. Well, Aristotle and Hippocrates. So... This treatise really lays out that melancholy and melancholia is associated with black bile. And that black bile dominates in men aged between 20 and 42 years old, corresponding to their maturity, the autumn of life. Oh, good. Your autumn of life is until you're 40. Back then. Okay, I was not liking that that assertion. Okay, so black, what is black bile? It's a fantastic question. Is it poop? It's a humor. Oh, well, I know what phlegm is. I'm also familiar with blood, and I've, I do know that yellow bile exists. 
So I just thought naturally there would be some correspondence to, you know, reality. Forgive me. <laughs> Are you sure it's not poop? So Hippocrates first described melancholia in relation to black bile, along with its relation to the thickening of bile and blood. And by that happening, the drying and thickening of it, one can have black bile. So they thought that was like what made bruises and stuff. You get my time machine and ask him. I'm up for it. Let's go. I don't think it's in your lifetime. Foiled. Okay, well, we'll just have to wander. So he also wrote on the Constitution of Man, talking about how when all of these elements are truly balanced and mingled, he feels the most perfect health. Illness occurs when one of these qualities is in excess, or is lessened in amount, or is entirely thrown out of the body. Well, I mean, I see how you could think like, oh, I have too much phlegm, ergo I'm coughing it up. That's what's making me sick. Yeah, but with this, they're talking about more than just something like that. More than just coughing or a cold or a pneumonia. Well, I see the seed of the idea is what I'm saying. Like, this stuff always appears when I'm sick. And then you expound upon it and you get philosophical and you make science. Well, and the ideas of humor really were around before Hippocrates. He's the first one that kind of wrote it down and systematized it. And we love those guys. We love a man with a rubric. So another physician, Rufus of Ephesius, in the first century, wrote on two types of melancholy, saying it makes a great difference for the treatment to find out how the illness began. One must know that there are two types of melancholia. Some people are naturally melancholic by virtue of their congenital temperament. So like me. Sure. By contrast, others acquire it later following an unhealthy diet. This second variety is always accompanied by slowness and dullness of mind. Since it's following excessive combustion of yellow bile, that these people are affected by delirium. They are more daring, quicker temper than others, inclined to strike, and commit dangerous acts, especially when this combustion of excessive bile takes place. How sure are you that they don't mean orange bile? Because I know someone that might fit the bill. So this is, again, that idea of, is the bile there already, that black bile, or is it yellow bile becoming black bile sinking and souring in our bodies until it poisons our minds i'm on board with the humors i like it better than science are you sure i don't want to be treated with it but i'd rather think about it i was it. gonna say i'd rather tr- i'd rather think about this than organic chemistry oh, well that's pretty terrible <laughs> this is not that much less complicated interestingly they start to tie these ideas to other neurological problems noting that they're related Hippocrates said that if the tongue suddenly becomes powerless or if a part of the body is struck by paralysis this is a melancholic state Melancholics also tend to become epileptic in the majority of cases, and epileptics are prone to becoming melancholic. Each of these two states arises according to the direction the disease takes. If it turns toward the body, people are epileptic. If it turns toward the mind, they are melancholic. And then you really start to see this triad of epilepsy, melancholy, and madness. And he's not physically locating it in the brain. Like, he's not figured that part out, but he is seeing that they with each other right and he does feel like the brain is this pneumatic organ that alternates between the different types of bile what does pneumatic mean pneumatic is like a pump okay so whatever is pumped into the brain affects how the brain works you can kind of read it that way it's interesting so madness is a result of too much of the wrong humor being pumped in your mind into your brain well so Kind of. Okay. (laughs) In the sacred disease, Hippocrates talks about the two types of madness. Which, by the way, great title. That's what they called epilepsy. Oh, because they're prophets. There's a little more to it than that. 
oracles things. So you have the madness of excited people that's caused by bile, a warm humor, and mm. the opposite madness of calm people caused by phlegm, a cold humor. So these humors really evolved in Roman times with Galen, and he is kind of the Hippocrates of Rome. He is the great Roman physician that we still have things written by him and things attributed to him that you know they're not sure of. And he was the private physician to Emperor Marcus Aurelius. Oh, he was like Dr. Oz. He was about as credible. Like a celebrity doctor. And he often used Hippocrates. He believed in the things he said and cited him frequently. Cited his sources, huh? Good on he him. did. Good on him. Now, he was going along with Hippocrates' ideas, and they weren't talking about this joyous madness that was a possibility. And Aristotle is actually one that kind of described these similar ideas. Later physicians did start to include this, such as Aradius who said man's delirium brought on by melancholy is uniquely depressive. And if signs of joy appear from time to time, it is a sign that the person's melancholy has changed into mania. In fact, according to Aradius, melancholy is often part of or start of mania. So that sounds kind of, I mean, I know I'm looking at this through my 21st century lens, but it kind of sounds like bipolar disorder. Right. I think they're starting to recognize things like that. They're observing behavior closely enough to recognize patterns. Exactly. So that, that actually is a little bit of science. Whoops. Well, that is why this is the start of science is because they're actually observing things from a very kind of what we consider now a scientific lens. Mm-hmm. And they're saying, oh, look, these things are related. These things are not related. Maybe this is what's going on and noticing patterns. It's just so impossible to imagine starting science from scratch. They did it. <laughs> Thank you. But so in this Galenic period and after it, you start to see the association of the humors with your different temperaments. Ah, yes. I believe I've seen this personality test on BuzzFeed. I'm sure it's there. And so again, it's all about a balance and the balance of the humors that one has and one's born with affects what your temperament would be. And the actual Latin word that temperament comes from means to mix. Okay, so you don't just get one. You're not just sanguine, melancholic, etc. You're a combination. Well, you can be. So like a sanguine temperament would be blood. They have more blood. Mm-hmm. And that's related from time standpoint with infancy. And it also could be associated with like a more joyful person. I always think a sanguine is angry, which is so funny. The name just like, I think how we use the term sanguine is different now. A bilious temperament, yellow bile, also associated with youth. And yellow bile can make the soul angrier, bolder, or more passionate. Or both. And then you get your melancholic temperament, which is your black bile associated with maturity. And that can make a soul angrier or more insolent. Insolent's a very good word. When I think, all I can think about when I hear the word melancholy is John Keats. Ode it's a to, pretty good Yeah. Ode to <laughs> melancholy, brooding, sitting around thinking about death all the time. So I don't think it was being angry. It's more that introspective, lonely, depressive thing. But that may be, again, looking at it through a modern lens. Well, no, I mean, Hippocrates describes it in that way, too. And other, you know, it's different depending on who I writes it. I guess bitter. Yeah. Bitter may be yeah. the word that they mean instead of angry. Then you can have your phlegmatic temperament. Is that the I don't give a fuck temperament? It's like the lazy, silly, kind of silly with older age. Okay. And yeah, they're just kind of apathetic. And like I said, you can mix all these two. You could be a pure one, but there are nine versions, nine mixes. And you're born one way and you can stay that way. But Galen was really all about the diet. Mm. And 
thought that your diet could really affect your balances. Ah, well, kind of. And so even though this is taking place in ancient Greek times and in Roman times, the ideas of humors and the ideas of the temperaments associated with them and the balances of things stuck around for a little bit. Yeah, they did. For example, I think that you and I could probably pretty easily decide what our temperament mixes are. Well, there's probably an online test for it. What do you think you are? I don't know, like bilious sanguine. Is bilious caloric? Yes. Okay, I agree with caloric. What are you trying to say? I think you're caloric phlegmatic. I think you're caloric phlegmatic. I'm not. I'm sanguine melancholy. <laughs> Joyful is sanguine. Oh, I'm very outgoing five for five minutes. I think you're just purely melancholic. I might be. Okay, fine. <laughs> I just want to like the rest of you. Oh, I skipped a quote. Let me read it to you. Oh, no. <laughs> The following symptoms often happen to melancholics. They are sometimes taciturn and solitary. They love deserted places. They avoid company, thinking that when they see people close to them, they see strangers. In the same way, people who are passionate about acquiring knowledge abandon all other preoccupations in order to obtain knowledge. Okay, I'm just going to read my Keats in the corner. Go fuck you guys. (laughs) But as we move away from science, the Middle Ages... (laughs) To boldly go back to not believing in anything. You know, you start to really see mental illness seen as things like possession. And without a doubt, that is used in Greece as like, you know, spirits, used in the Middle East, used in China. That is a tradition that has been around for a very long time. Right. Jesus was all about casting demons out of people and into pigs, actually. You're right. So that's a good reason not to eat pork, because demons. I like my demon bacon. Pork Bacon is the devil, because it is beautifully tempting. Then give it to me. Can I have your bacon? No. No, you can't. I shall have my son. But now one historian said, So the issue of maybe exercising madness became something that from Christ passes to his disciples, and then to bishops, and even ordinary priests. And that's the way in which Christianity became associated with these issues. Oh boy, did it. Now, you have to remember in Europe at this time, only a small number of people who were deemed insane were actually institutionalized. Many were kept at home. Or killed. That too. Or made into saints. That happens. Joan of Arc was kind of a little crazy. Yeah, but she was awesome. So she can be a saint. You'd be crazy and awesome. (laughs) There's a Venn diagram somewhere. It's in the secret Vatican vaults. No, it's not. It's painted in the Mona Lisa in -in glow-in-the-dark paint, stupid. If you look at it in the light of a full moon. Thanks, Dan Brown. I was going more Tolkien, but whatever. So one place where Christianity and mental illness met in a cataclysmic and history-scarring way was at the Priory of St. Mary of Bethlehem, or Bethlehem, or Bedlam. I feel like we just recently mentioned that this is where the term Bedlam comes from. We might have. We may have said such. It was founded in 1247 by Bishop Goffredo de Perfetti, and it was built near, or perhaps on top of, a sewer. And it was originally used as a facility to collect alms in order to help fund the Crusades. But during the time that they were collecting alms for the Crusades, it was not uncommon for monks or other religious figures to take in the indigent who were often mentally ill. It's not incredibly clear when the mission of Bethlehem shifted from alms collection to caring for patients, but in 1330 it was referred to in text as a hospital, and in 1377 it had become a home exclusively for the insane. At any given time, there might be about a dozen patients, and it had a kitchen and an exercise yard. 
However, in the 1600s, ownership was transferred from the church to the state. And the second bu building that housed Bedlam was erected in 1675 or 1676 by Robert Hook. And it was described in 1734 as a very well situated in point of view and is laid out in very elegant taste who is writing this review it's a yelp review it's a, it is totally a yelp review five stars can we get some of the one star ones <laughs> <laughs> one star no 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 his chains were very uncomfortable <laughs> but over the hospital gates there were two larger than life human statues called dementia and mania or melancholy madness and raving madness showing that these ideas from greece are still around oh and very very influential and they are two human figures one raving madness has on chains and he's screaming and then melancholy madness has just sort of a glazed expression and is sort of staring off into space and not chained up but very vacant look on his face and these were erected by caius gabriel kibber or Sibber, who was Danish, in 1676. And the statues were moved along with the hospital to a new location in 1810, and the new location was in Southwark. Both were about 14 feet off the ground above the gate where one entered the hospital. But later, they were moved inside and covered with a curtain because they were agitating people. I can't imagine why. I can't either. It's like when Ashcroft covered Justice's boobs. Dick. And... Behind the curtain, they stayed until hospital governors visited, and then they were unveiled for the governors. But they were removed from the facility entirely in 1858 and moved to the South Kensington Museum. But now, they're part of a recently opened Museum of the Mind at Bethlehem Hospital. So now, there were a lot of famous patients that stayed in Bethlehem, or Bedlam. Or Bethlehem, or whatever. Yes, there were. One of these was Augustus Pugin, who designed the interior of the palace at Westminster. Good on you, Augustus. Good on you. One could say the job drove him mad. Really? You yes. keeping that? Yep. Okay. And there was also the legendary pickpocket, Mary Firth, or as she liked to be known, or as the papers liked her to be known, Mole Cutpurse. Oh my, this dastardly villain. It sounds like a Batman villain, and I love it. And there was also Daniel. Just Daniel, like Prince? Much. Okay. Much the same. Now, he was... Seven feet, six inches tall, which would have been really something, considering that most people were well under six feet tall. And he was also the former porter of one Oliver Cromwell. Things worked out well for everyone. Cromwell included. Yes. And so he was allowed to have an entire library. Sounds like another patient we know of. Right? Cromwell made sure to leave those instructions. And he was a religious fanatic and reported clairvoyant. He developed his own congregations Inside Bedlam, people would go and listen to him preach, all the other patients, and he was supposedly able to predict several terrible events, including a plague and the Great Fire of London in 1666. The Oracle of Bedlam. Oh my god, I'm writing it. I have a vision. Another famous patient was James Tilly Matthews. After the French Revolution, when tensions between England and France were running quite high, Matthews decided to travel to France and just sort things out thanks dude yeah like he just went like no one told him to he just went well that was nice of him he was gonna defuse the tensions no grandiose delusions no 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 well as one would if one were french and an englishman showed up saying hey 
I'm here to fix everything. The French automatically suspected that he was a spy. Bullshit. <laughs> Bullshit, we lock you up. And they did. They locked him up. And they played a game for a few years. And the name of the game was Spy or Crazy? They decided he was definitely crazy and sent him back to England, as one would with a crazy Englishman. Like, we're tired of hearing this shit. Go back. Send him back to where there is no salt and the food tastes terrible. Ha ha ha. Are you sure he wasn't just in the castle in Monty Python? <laughs> your mother was a hamster and your father smelled of elderberries. I fought in your general direction. <laughs> so this drove him insane. The taunting. That would. <laughs> but as soon as he returned to England, he accused Lord Liverpool, who was the Home Secretary of Treason. And Lord Liverpool was like, hell nah, your ass is going to Bedlam. And so he went to Bedlam. And this was quite the logical thing for Lord Liverpool to do with this man. So naturally, Tilly responded by doing the most illogical thing, which was explaining that he was a secret agent. Oh, good. The French were right. <laughs> yes. Uh, the first time. Not when they said he was just crazy. Probably the second time. Maybe the second time, too. Maybe they were just all the way right. But he said that his mind was being controlled by the heirloom gang. I buy it. And this group used a machine that affected a magnet that they had implanted in his brain. And he said that they met in the basement of Parliament to control this giant heirloom magnet machine that made him do things. And they were intent on forcing a war with France. And his family believed that he was just insane, just crazy. And they sent two different doctors to examine him while he was in Bedlam. And both claimed that he was quite sane. John Haslam, who we will talk more about later actually made Matthews the subject of his major work, Illustrations of Madness. And what he writes turns out to be this very recognizable and perhaps one of the earliest fully documented cases of paranoid schizophrenia. It sounds like he had a fixed delusion. Yes. And when one has just a fixed delusion, you are quite sane unless you bring up the fixed delusion. And he was. He was very intelligent, articulate. And charming when he was not talking about the heirloom gang and their ma- plot for magnetic mind control. Do we know that didn't happen? No, we don't. We don't. We don't at all. We don't. We don't. <laughs> Your father smells of elderberries. So, now that we've talked about some of the famous patients who inhabited Bedlam, let's spend a moment discussing some of the famous governors of Bedlam. Oh, fantastic. I bet these are going to be some charming fellows. Oh, Yes. Are they members of the heirloom gang? I think you may have just solved history. All of it. (laughs) So, Bedlam was called the first hospital in Europe specializing in mental illness. And after 1634, the medical staff was elected by a court of governors. This was an anti-corruption effort. It was meant to limit their salaries and make sure that they had limited responsibility over the financial affairs of the institution. However... Personal connections, personal interest, and royal favor did have an an impact on the appointment of physicians. That's not shocking. No. And many people did say that the appointment practices were quite nepotistic. And one of the reasons they may have said this is because there was a dynasty that controlled Bedlam. Really? Yes. It was the Monroe dynasty. And in 1728, Dr. James Monroe was elected to become the physician at Bedlam. 
and it began a 125-year reign of the Monroe family. It sounds so ethical. Mm-hmm. His son James followed in 1751, and Thomas followed in 1787, and then in 1815, Edward became the last. Now, John Monroe, the second of the Monroes, claimed expertise in treatment of mental disorder. And he also felt that he might be the only person who was truly capable of identifying, treating, and diagnosing these mental illnesses. So he was the curse and the cure in this case. Now, unlike their contemporaries, the Monroes were not fond of the so-called moral treatments and preferred physical remedies, a sampling. Rotational therapy. Is this where they would tell them to sit on it and rotate? Yes, Potsy, it is. So patients were placed in a chair suspended from the ceiling, and the chair would be spun at the direction of the doctor up to 100 rotations per minute. And the patient would often vomit or experience extreme vertigo. And both of these were believed to have healing potentials. But it was good punitive action. Exactly. Yes, I'll behave. Don't put me in the damn chair. No, you'd never sit again. And they also practiced blistering. And that involved placing hot plasters onto the skin to raise blisters, which were then drained. And in the absence of heat, any caustic substance could be applied to achieve the same effect. This is where we really see those humor ideas coming back. Absolutely. Kind of balance things out. Pull out the bad. And then we really get to see that with everyone's favorite medieval practice, leeching. Leeching! We're going to talk about leeches now. Yay! Who's excited? When I was a kid... And went to Boy Scout camp in Arkansas. There was like the swimming hole area. And they always said that there were leeches there. I never saw one. So I don't know if it was true. All I can think about when I think about leeches is stand by me. Yuck. It's, that's the mental image I have of them. And will forever be. So your swimming hole in Arkansas story strikes me as very on point. Or they were just copying stand by me. <laughs> Probably. So leeches can be found all over the world, even in Arkansas. And they live mostly in fresh water. And they are blood-sucking segmented worms. Now, the most commonly used leech is the European medicinal leech. And this leech has three jaws with around 100 sharp teeth on the outer jaw and a sucker that attaches to the skin before the teeth ever make contact. Now, their bite is unique. The mouth is located in the middle of the sucker and it opens, exposing the teeth, which cut into a patient's skin. Their saliva anesthetizes the wound, rendering the bite virtually painless, and it also dilates blood vessels to increase blood flow to the site of the bite. Leech saliva also contains an enzyme that promotes quick dissipation of substances in the leech saliva away from the bite site. It prevents clotting and promotes blood flow because it contains herudin, which inhibits thrombin, and thrombin facilitates clotting. Good job. I'm sciencing. So once bitten, their victims can bleed for hours. A leech can drain 0.5 ounces of blood or 15 grams in 30 minutes. And after a leech becomes fully engorged, it falls off naturally. But the wound can continue to bleed for up to 10 hours. I assume that's if you take no action to stop the bleeding. Right, like not even put a cloth on it or or anything. No pressure or anything. Now average blood loss when the bleeding stops is around 120 grams. But then they would apply more than one leech at a time. Up to 50. Now, Indian records show evidence of the practice of leeching in Sanskrit writings of the ancient Indian physicians Karaka and Sarsuta, dating from the beginning of the Common Era. Now, some people say that Egyptian records indicate that they were used over 3,500 years ago, 
But I personally think these may be cobras and not leeches in the illustrations. But maybe I'm cynical. Well, and Galen definitely did this as well. Well, yes. He was the person that kind of popularized bloodletting in Rome. And his practice was so widespread that it actually survived the fall of Rome and went on to live in medieval Europe. Hooray. Hooray. And this is therapy, as it is called. Leech therapy. Very, very popular in medieval Europe. So popular, in fact, that doctors and physicians were actually called... Leeches. Leeches. And they used millions of parasites annually to treat patients. Now, in the young United States, also, also fans of leeches and bleeding. Benjamin Rush saw the state of arteries as key to disease and recommended higher than ever levels of bloodletting, which were really, really, really high. Benjamin Rush, who signed the Declaration of Independence. Mm -hmm. As a lecturer at the Royal College of Physicians would state in 1840, bloodletting is a remedy that when judiciously employed is hardly possible to estimate too highly. So around this time, leech mania of the 1800s, as it was known, the demand for leeches was so high that France began to export 40 million leeches each year. And England imported 6 million leeches per year from France alone. Now, you know, they do still use leeches today. It was even declared a medical device by the FDA in 2004. And I'm guessing that today, unlike back in the day, patients don't lose 80% of their blood in one leeching. Not if you do it right. Do you know how many leeches you would have to have to lose that much? 50? More than that. Millions? You wouldn't survive losing 80% of your blood. Like, I don't know how valid that number is you would die you would die maybe they did <laughs> plenty did robin hood did oh is his from leeching uh, from bloodletting um well interesting distinction you make there because leeches were luxury items and so they were not commonly used in lower income facilities like bedlam most of the time if you were going to be bled in bedlam they'd just cut your ass <laughs> robin hood should have kept some of that sweet sweet gold and the cutting worked really, really well to start bleeding. However, stopping bleeding was problematic. So in addition to all of the colorful therapies that they introduced, the Monroes had one more offering for history. Oh, it's going to be good. It is. They were so sweet to their patients and they would come and spend time with them. <clears throat> no. The Monroes demonstrated a galling lack of shame regarding their practices which is one of my favorite sentences, even inviting members of the public to, for a fee, explore the hospital during the evening and poke fun at the unfortunate inmates who were often chained inside their tiny rooms. If the subject wasn't being entertaining enough, observers prodded them with sticks until they were. So they literally poked fun at them. Yes, they did. Henry Mackenzie wrote in 1771 in his work, the man of feeling, the conductor led them first to the dismal mansions of those who are in the most horrid state of incurable madness, the clanking of chain, the wildness of their cries, the imprecations which some of them uttered, formed a scene inexpressibly shocking. So the tickets that, that the Monroes sold to allow the public to come in and, as we said, literally poke fun of the mentally ill, made up a large sum of the hospital's annual revenue. Along with selling donations, including food, they made quite a nice profit. But the institution was also a means for exerting 
a very corrupt form of social control. That's what Foucault would say. (laughs) He says a lot. (laughs) But this was more literal than Foucault. Oh, Foucault thought it was literal. (laughs) People could pay to have their critics and rivals locked up, and husbands paid to have their wives committed to the institution when they became troublesome. That's a good idea. What? No. Sorry, just thinking out loud. Stop that. Keep it in your brain. People were not required to need treatment just to pay for it. So you remember John Halsam? Yes. I mentioned earlier, he was also kind of a shithead. It's going to be a trend. Yes, he was an apothecary and he was working in, the, in Bedlam in 1795. Halsam believed that in order to be cured, the mentally infirm first needed to be broken. Fantastic. <laughs> it's going to go very well. This entailed a variety of gruesome tortures and Eventually, a Quaker philanthropist named Edward Wakefield managed to gain access to the hospital, despite the best efforts of the Bethlehem personnel. He's a spy. He was. But he also brought a governor and a member of parliament with him. And what they found merited a very formal, formal inquest and forced the resignation of Thomas Monroe, who was described as wanting inhumanity. Sick burn. Yes. They found many men starved and chained to walls. And one that stuck with them most was a man named James Norris, who had been trapped in a harness for 14 years. Now, the harness was attached to chains on the walls, which the staff would jerk at random times, slamming him into the stone walls when he least expected it. Eventually, the Monroes were kind of stereotyped or became the stereotype of mad doctors. And Bedlam became the stereotype of the loony bin. Absolutely. And the Monroes were featured in poems and plays and cartoons and pamphlets. And when Thomas stepped down in 1816, there were steps taken to make Bethlehem more humane. For example, Broadmoor was open. And Broadmoor was created to house the criminally insane or the more violent patients. That's where our good doctor was. Oh, yes, yes. That's Dr. Minor, yes. Right. With his library. Writer of the dictionary. (laughs) With his library. Moving the criminally insane away from Bethlehem did help kind of create a less violent image of mental illness. And that went a long way to changing public sentiment toward Mm -hmm. the mentally ill. But on the continent, they were making efforts to do something about the, the lunatic problem as well. And this is where we find the fun term, the Naren term. What's that? The Fool's Tower. That's PC. No, it's not. Not at all. Don't call things that. But it did represent a shifting attitude toward mental illness, which was previously seen as divine punishment or infernal possession. However, now, with modern medicine, it was being linked to the imbalance of humors. Oh, good. Science. Right. Excess yellow bile definitely caused madness. Or melancholia. Well, in Vienna. Definitely yellow bile. We like the we like the melancholics in Vienna. They say, <laughs> and this is in Vienna. It's was known as Alts AKC or the Old General Hospital, and it's a five story round fortress. And today locals call it the Pound Cake, and it kind of looks like a pound cake. And it was part of a modernization effort by Joseph II, and he was known for his religious beliefs and reform efforts. And he built many public buildings for health institutions. And it was the first building in Europe designed especially for keeping mentally ill patients. So they started to separate out people with mental illness and giving them their own place versus just people that are sick. 
Right. And in 1784, it began admitting patients. Now, each of the five floors were divided into separate departments. And on the first floor were the, quote, military insane. So PTSD, I would guess. Uh, Yes, I think so. Other diagnoses of patients housed there were melancholia, delirium, tremens. So the DTs, someone's going through like alcohol withdrawal. Mm -hmm. And groups that they called the mad, the raging, and the unclean, which sound like levels you have to beat in some kind of awful video game. And it was a circular tower, so it's totally made for this. Oh, this could be a game. Now, some inmates were chained to walls, and they did have locked doors and barred windows. However, one writer who was describing this building noted that using bars instead of glass did allow for a nice airflow. That is a very sanguineous temperament that writer has. <laughs> joyous and optimistic. Let's bleed them. And I just like to remark on my melancholy once more. I was offended enough by it that I wrote it down just to point out later. (laughs) Like, come on. But some reports do indicate that there were more progressive treatment systems there. Some patients were allowed to walk freely inside and even outdoors in summer. And, very impressive for the time, the building was attached to a sewage system. And they had toilets in each room. And it's noted that the walls were so thick, not for security, but because they are full of pipes. So they had indoor plumbing? It was very rudimentary, and it did not work correctly, because the pipes all ended at a 90-degree angle in the ground. That's shitty planning. Uh-huh, it is, and it created a, a smell. You have to wonder if the, the fumes were inciting the <laughs> visions, and that's why you get the oracles. Absolutely. Well... Some historians believe that the tower's round shape and the number of its rooms and other elements follow a mathematic calculation based on mystical beliefs. The idea was to recreate an astrological order that would help the patients regain their sanity. So that fits with those like Ptolemaic views of the universe, like Earth is the center of the universe, everything's connected. We just line everything up in the right way. Mm-hmm. Right. Then we'll be able to fix it. Right. And it does fit with that. There's a circular pattern, if you look at the old maps that he drew. And I mean, they are like Holy Roman Emperor, you know, birthright of the Aryans, all such. Sure. And if you look through the window on the night of a full moon, you will see that Mona Lisa is still waiting for you to meet her at the stinky pound cake. (laughs) Thank you, Dan Brown. Stinky pancake sounds like the worst brothel ever. <laughs> now, while, while the astrology angle is very interesting, others argue that the shape was chosen to mimic the confused state of an inmate's mind because walking from one chamber to another, going up in circles, could be very dizzying. Now, at one point, there was a tower on top of the building, and the emperor, Joseph II, apparently liked to visit this tower quite a lot. For the view? Maybe. Some people think for the view, but it stank, remember? And people were being treated for mental illness before we knew how to treat them for mental illness. So Maybe probably he just like, screams. liked the smell and the screams. Uh, you never know. You he never came know. twice a week. Mm, he either really liked it or didn't. <laughs> but he would remain in the tower for hours alone. Oh, he was doing some Crowley shit up there. Oh, yeah. And some people say that he did certain astrological experiments in the tower. And the room was about 20 meters square and had windows on each wall that were of octagonal shapes. Now, the emperor may have not have had the most beautiful view over the city, but he had a perfect view of the sky. 
maybe he chose the seclusion of the place to try to prove astrological theories of his time. Maybe. Sure. Maybe. Maybe. Could be. Good story, bro. Now, there were about 250 inmates housed there, and there was very little treatment, and they were basically incarcerated, not being really made better. Right, because at this time, a lot of, of the reason for putting people away was the public safety. And it only functioned until 1866, but now... It is the Pathological and Anatomical Museum in Vienna, and it has the world's oldest and largest collection of pathological specimens. Oh, I bet they have some cool stuff there. There's also a Freud Museum in Vienna. It has a giant sign that says, Freud. Want to go? You want to go? You want to go? Yes. (laughs) I love being a nerd with you. So following the Dark Ages and the medieval times and all of these fantastic treatments they've been doing, we do start to move towards the Age of Enlightenment. Oh, no, no. No, sir. We move toward the Age of Confinement. That's what Foucault would say. Are we doing what Foucault would say this episode instead of what would Freud say? (laughs) Sure. If we were to get in Foucault, that's all we talk about. I love how you're like, you could read that a little bit for this episode. Why don't you give like a, a minute idea of what Foucault is all about? Oh, God. 60s France wrote on institutions and the evils that they do. And called the Age of Enlightenment the, the Age, Age of, of confinement. confinement. And not just... In a cheeky way. And no. not just mental asylums. Oh, no. No. He writes about sex and jail and madness and you should go read it. You should go read it and then call and tell me all about it on the Urban Legend Hotline in six months. <laughs> now, this time... The professor that I quoted earlier, Professor Skull, says the doctors of this period confess that some forms of madness genuinely belong in the province of the divines, in the province of the priests, but others, they claim, belong to them. So by the 18th century, we do start to see a move towards this idea of kind of a medical cause of mental illness. And you see the origins of everyone thinking that doctors have God complexes. Look at them. Look at them saying, yes, well, some things maybe you priest can deal with, but the rest. It's all for us. So prior to the founding of many of these institutions, people were kept in almshouses and poorhouses. Which were equally likely to make ghosts. Oh, yes. But then you start to get the idea of moral treatment. Also known as, let's be a little more humane to these people. Has anyone tried being nice to them? No. Let's try being nice to them. And for 10,000 years, everyone had literally turned to the guy who said that and thrown rocks at him. Yeah. But one day, two guys said it. And so you do start to see in the age of enlightenment, the stress on innovation, problem solving, by being conscious, being purposeful in our interventions and actions. And so Dr. Felipe Pinel in 1792 felt that environmental changes could affect a person's mental state and behavior. He felt that madness was not incurable and suggested that a confinement in a well-ordered asylum that was established to help people, where they would actually try to help people, could be effective. He even successfully changed Paris's worst asylum from a punitive and repressive institution to a progressive psychiatrically oriented hospital and there are even like paintings of him removing the chains from the women at the paris asylum for the insane and of course she's beautiful of course la belle femme now in england you have a quaker william took these quakers are all about being nice to people i don't trust them (laughs) they're so nice 
They were the original Mormons. Now, he rejected the punitiveness and brutality of the English wardens and really became an advocate for this moral treatment, wanting to treat people with humanity and dignity. Isn't that crazy? He wrote a widely read book entitled Treatise on the Moral Treatment of the Insane, and he found a small retreat in New York, the York Retreat, and he lived at the retreat. It was wide open spaces. People could move around. They had different things to occupy their time. They were treated kindly and with respect. He lived there with his family and treated people as if they were members of his family. Now, in America, well, it took a minute. Yeah. So Dr. Benjamin Rush that you mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Very important. Keep signer of the Declaration of Independence, also known as the father of American psychiatry. They were all fathers of something. Like, I feel like each one of them, like, had a life card job. Well, he had some positive things. So he advocated strongly for education, temperance, uh, well. uh, the abolition of slavery. Okay, well, That's yeah. good. Uh, he helped establish two colleges in Pennsylvania. Okay. And he did it all while he was sober. It's amazing. Not sure how. <laughs> he really felt like a lot of illness was related to how our blood vessels were doing. I have a feeling we're about to cut some people open. Well, he believed that mental disease was caused by irritation of the blood vessels in the brain. And he would bleed people, purge them, different baths, mercury. Oh, yeah. That won't make you crazy. And he invented a tranquilizer chair. Oh. Did it spin? No. He also used a gyrator. Oh. <laughs> that spun. So the tranquilizer chair was a chair with straps. You would sit in it and your arms and legs were pinned down. You had a closed stool beneath in case you evacuated your bowels. Oh, well. There was a padded headrest that went over your eyes and ears and sensation was cut off, preventing you from moving. And supposedly, it reduced the flow of blood to the brain. Cool water was poured on the person's head and hot water on the feet to draw things away. (laughs) Okay. Well, um, it is actually the exact opposite of rotational therapy. But he also did that. And he also bled people a lot, too. Big fan. So bleeding in general was quite popular in young America. And Young Americans. I did not know what you were doing for there for a second because you did it so well. <laughs> Thanks. It was a divine inspiration. Oh, it was. And among those who were really fond of bleeding and believed in its healing powers were Dr. James Craik and his patient, George Washington. The George Washington? That one. Father of all of it? Yes, that's the one. I think that's his official father Father of all of it. So one night, Washington had a sore throat and he became a little horse. No, he did not become a little horse because that would be a much better story. The story's great. He became a little horse named Pedro. And he ate cherries off a cherry tree that just happened to be chopped down. Everyone clapped and he flew around. No, he became a little horse with an A. And they put a scarlet letter on this horse? It was the most naughty horse. No bugger on this episode. Let's continue. Pish posh, no buggery. On we go. Okay, so after being a little horse... He woke in the middle of the night and was very uncomfortable, but was like, whatever, I'll make it. I'm George motherfucking Washington. And Martha was like, that's right, you are, honey. Let's get back to bed. But the next morning, he was having a lot of trouble breathing, which struck everyone in the home as a little more serious. And so Martha sent for George Rollins. Who is George Rollins? Not a doctor. He's an overseer at Mount Vernon. But Washington asked Rollins to bleed him. 
So he did. And while that was going on, they sent for Dr. James Crake, who is a Scottish physician and also a friend of the family. But while they were waiting on Dr. Crake, Washington got impatient and had Rollins bleed him again. And put the shit out of him. They took a half pint of blood, or about eight ounces, during that bleeding. But Washington was also given a mixture of molasses, butter, and vinegar to soothe his throat. But it became very difficult to swallow, causing him to convulse and nearly suffocate. Oh, I know what he had. What did he have? Probably had epiglottitis. Well, they began to think that in the 1800s, but at the time, they oh, thought... they didn't know what the hell epiglottitis was then? Yeah. At the time, they thought the little horse was in his throat. <laughs> so they decided, while they were waiting for Dr. Craig, who was not there yet, that they needed to send for another doctor, Dr. Gustavus Brown of Port Tobacco, which is epically wonderful. Is he the father of lung cancer? Yes, he is. But Dr. Craig arrived around nine that morning and examined Washington and decided to produce a blister on his throat... To balance the fluids out. Yes, exactly. And Craig also bled Washington for a third time and then ordered a potion of vinegar and sage tea be prepared for him to gargle with. So he's having a great morning. (laughs) Things are going well for George. He's half delirious. He can't breathe or swallow. Right. And he's been bled and blistered and he's gargled things. And they're like, what else can we make him do? So they give him an enema because that'll help. And then they bled him again. Wonderful. And this was the last time that they would bleed him. But reports say that about 32 ounces of blood were taken during the last bleeding. Yes, because the average body has about 160 ounces of blood in it. They also gave him an emetic just because, you know, he hadn't done that yet. Gotta get the fat out. And so he vomited. But at five in the afternoon, recovering his gravitas after the series of insults are done to him, he gets up from the bed and gets dressed by himself. And goes over to his chair by the window and looks out over his vast estate in this new country that he's helped build. And sings America the Beautiful. It didn't exist yet. I know. But no. He also couldn't sing at this time because he couldn't breathe. <laughs> he talks. He does talk. Supposedly. <laughs> but he's he, not talking. Like I'm, if it's epiglottitis, you don't know that. I'm pretty damn sure. Did, did your thing say it was? Well, in the 1800s, they thought maybe. Yeah, but he, it is. Don't take away George Washington's words. They're great. He says, Doctor, I die hard, but I am not afraid to go. I believed from my first attack that I should not survive it. My breath cannot last long. So that night, Craig applies more blisters to his feet and his legs. And Stop it. it. And at 10, George Washington spoke requesting that they stop, stop, stop this shit. No, he didn't say that. (laughs) He spoke requesting that he be decently buried and not let my body be put in the vault in less than three days after I'm dead. And he died at 11 that night on December 14th, 1799, when he was 67 years old. And they believe that altogether they took 80 ounces of blood in 12 hours. Wow. That's insane. I believe that him talking... Is exactly a product of people being like, you bled him how much? They're like, no, no, no. He said he knew he was going to die from the very beginning. <laughs> he said, he's fine. He's dying. He was just very obviously dying. But so while Benjamin Rush and his colleagues weren't bleeding founding fathers to death. I bet you that's like how half of them died. <laughs> he did help found the Pennsylvania Hospital in Philadelphia, which was built by Quakers and modeled after the York Retreat. So literally the happiest place in America. Now, this place was successful because it was going on that moral treatment plan. Right. The, the people, the, the Monroes were like, yeah, that's all tosh. What do you want to do? You want to be nice? Chain them up. 
But what do the people who come to visit your institution look at? How do they make fun of them properly? Do you put hats on them at least? Please tell me there are hats. We must have some dignity about us. But at this time, you really start to see this idea of what causes insanity to change. So you have the, almost surprisingly, idea that there's something wrong in the brain. There's a lesion of the brain that is causing this problem. That's quite astute. But then you have that other problem, the other thing that could be causing this, and that's moral causes. Oh. Oh. And this is when you get the idea of moral insanity. It's due to willful violation of natural laws that govern human behavior, such as immorality. Or buggery. Well, yes. <laughs> Self-pollution. <laughs> Improper living conditions. Stresses that could precipitate this illness. And so since you couldn't really address the problems in the brain, although they sure as hell tried, they would really focus on those moral causes like masturbation, alcohol abuse, jealousy, pride, excessive ambition. So now we are getting to the, well, we've tried shaking them, we've tried beating them, we've tried starving them, we've tried all manner of things, and none of that seems to work. We even tried giving them a little Jesus. We're going to put some... Well, I think that's what they're doing at the moment. They're putting the Jesus into into the brain. But it's good Victorian and Edwardian morality. Right. We're applying the morality directly to the brain lesion at this point as much as we can. But I thought it was interesting. I was reading through this 1854 appeal to the citizens of Pennsylvania for means to provide additional accommodations for the insane. And one passage said, Insanity is a functional disorder of the brain. It is to be regarded as the diseases of other organs, that there is no more reproach connected with one than the others, and that it is as curable, if properly treated, as many other maladies. Wow, that could have been, I mean, except for the proper grammar and full sentences, it could have been written yesterday. Right? Like, we're still asking people to consider mental illness as just another illness. Like, hey guys, it's just a problem, just like any other problem. And it even said, like, none can claim exemption of this. Sex, class, age, anything. Saying the difference between this disease and others, commonly best managed among strangers... And rarely with success, except in institutions specifically arranged for its treatment. It's saying that we've got to have these institutions to be able to properly care for these people. Right, because it's not a quick fix. If you're trying to apply a moral treatment, it's got to be ongoing. You can't do it in a day. Right, and so this idea of moral treatment of mentally ill patients and the establishment of asylums for this really took off in the United States. By 1847, there were 30 asylums for moral treatment that had been established along the East Coast. So around this time, you also start to see the finding of what would become the specialty of psychiatry. You have the Association of the Medical Superintendents of American Institutions for the Insane, which also comes around the time of the emergence of psychiatry, the second subspecialty after surgery in the United States. So this later became the American Psychiatric Association. They Better wisely name. changed their name. Better name. Good edit. So initially, asylums were built in a private fashion for those that could afford it. And everyone else was still just sent over to the almshouse. That was literally like a dumping ground. No, literally. But by the mid-19th century, responsibility for the insane began to move towards the jurisdiction of state asylums. 
And this is when we get Miss Dorothea Dix that comes into play. Dorothea Dix. And she was a huge proponent of the poor and mentally ill in the 1840s. Just like an advocate. Yeah. Well, for, she, on their yeah, behalf. Yeah. Well, she went to the Boston jail to teach a Sunday school class oh, in 1841. And she found the mentally ill people confined under inhumane conditions. How good can you be? She was as good as they get. She would personally visit jails, almhouses, hospitals, and wherever she would find confined mentally ill patients, carefully document her findings. She would go to prominent citizens and legislatures and talk them into introducing these written, quote, memorials into state legislatures in which she described the conditions she'd found. The Dix memos. (laughs) Right. But they were official. They were officially on the record now. And so what do you do with that? They did start to funnel money into building state asylums. So now the government's in the game. This is going to go well. I, this is this is gang after glee up a storm. Well, they start with good intentions. Gang after glee. So as a direct result of Dorothea Dick's efforts, 32 public mental hospitals were founded. That's a pretty good turnout, Dorothea. Right, and they were founded on those ideas of moral asylums. Now, one of these hospitals was the New Jersey State Lunatic Asylum, now known as the Trenton Psychiatric Hospital. And it was founded by activist Dorothea Dix and established with that moral treatment plan, just as they all were. But the problem is that the use of insane asylums became very custodial in nature. Mm, What do we do with these people? What do we do with these people? What do we do with someone we don't like? Oh, back to the social control. The age of confinement, if you will. Right. But, I mean, the asylum populations grew. They grew and grew and grew over the years. Peaking in 1955 with roughly 600,000 patients. Interestingly, speaking of the history of psychiatry, asylums existed before psychiatry existed. And they developed a very symbiotic relationship because each gave the other some form of legitimacy. Ah, we're back to the curse and the cure. Yeah. So asylum life rapidly became a huge clusterfuck. Technical term? Yes. Okay. This moral treatment demanded these smaller settings, but patient numbers kept increasing. And psychiatrists were not able to do any sort of job, even if they wanted to, which they may not have always. And it became very largely managerial and administrative. Mental hospitals also became surrogates as old age homes as well. So if you were to get older and start to have dementia, you'd be sent to the hospital. There you go. And they were also became repositories for those with tertiary syphilis, which we'll talk a little bit more about later. But the mortality rate in these asylums were five times the general population due to overcrowding. So five time, you were five times as likely to die if you were in a mental institution than if you were just out and about in the world. Right. Oh. And so you get a good start. You get the best of intentions, but it rapidly, rapidly becomes the worst case possible. So I just feel like talking about nice stuff for a minute. Like horses? Like little horses. Let's talk about Nellie Bly. I feel like we should just keep going with this female activist with three letters in their last name theme. Is that what your astrological practices told you to do? Yes. Speaking of which, she was a Taurus. She was born May 5th of 1864. And her original name was 
Elizabeth Jane Cochran, and she was born in Cochran Mills, Pennsylvania. Coincidental? No, it was named for her father. Not coincidental. No, who was Judge Michael Cochran, and she, he died when she was six years old. And her mother, Mary Jane, remarried, but her stepfather was very abusive, and her mother eventually divorced him. Now, to divorce someone in the 1880s or thereabouts was a mean feat, so he must have been very abusive. But Nellie attended the Indiana Normal School in hopes of becoming a teacher, but she couldn't pay tuition, and she had to leave after one semester. But she and her mother opened a boarding house in Pittsburgh to help make a living. In 1885, Nellie was incensed when she read an editorial in the Pittsburgh Dispatch entitled, What Girls Are Good For? Absolutely nothing. Basically. So the article admonished women for even attempting to have an education or career and suggested that they should stray no further than the home. So did she do like you would and write a strongly worded letter? That is exactly what she did. She did write a strongly worded letter to the editor and signed it, Little Orphan Girl. Now, George Madden, who was the aforementioned editor, was very impressed with her writing and placed an ad asking Little Orphan Girl to come and visit his paper. And so she did. And he asked her to write a full-length response to the original editorial. She wrote The Girl Puzzle and signed it Nellie Bly. And Nellie Bly was the title of a popular song by Stephen Foster at the time. Now, she was hired on at the paper as a journalist. And there were other female journalists, but they typically covered topics like gardening and fashion and society. Oh, like like we cover societies. No, like page six. Oh, like, can you believe what she was wearing? Basically, yes. Like, yeah, more of that. She took off black in three months. What harlot. But she preferred to focus on social issues. So she drew heavily on her mother's experience and wrote about the disadvantages that women faced in divorce proceedings, which would have been radical at the time. And she also wrote about the lives of women who worked in Pittsburgh's bottle factories. And she pissed off the bottle lobby. Don't piss off the bottle lobby. They threatened to pull advertising along with some other businessmen. And so she was assigned a gardening story. How'd that go? Well, she handed it in on oh, time good. with her resignation. Nice. Where should it go now? Mexico. That makes sense. Absolutely. So she went there just to kind of travel and she wrote letters back to Madden, her former editor, and he published them. But it had begun as this kind of lovely travelogue about a girl going abroad. However, it quickly became a political critique. And when she reported that President Porfirio Diaz was imprisoning journalists for criticizing the government, she found that she was threatened with soap vampires imprisonment but yeah basically and so she left the country and later that work was collected into a book called six months in mexico and when she came back to america she went to new york city and she did a lot of really interesting undercover work as a journalist and she exposed crooked lobbyists in the government and tracked the plight of unwanted babies and reported on conditions of the poor workers and box making factories and much much more and this is where she got her fame from doing all this undercover work Yes. And she was so popular that her name was used as headline for her articles. And in 1899, she decided that she should travel around the world faster than Jules Verne's fictional character, Phileas Fogg. Nice. So he did it in 80 days and she wanted to do it in less. But women were not allowed to travel without an escort at the time. And people also said that no one would be interested in having a woman around a long trip like that because they just carried too much luggage. 
Just thinking about you packing your bags. Yeah, I do carry a lot of luggage. But anyway, she said to hell with you all. She carried two little bags. And she boarded the Augusta Victoria on November 14th of 1889. And she traveled through England to Egypt, on to Singapore and Hong Kong, and then to Japan. And during her travels, she did stop in France where she met Jules Verne. The Jules Verne? The one. That guy. Did he give her a ride on his submarine? (laughs) Maybe. But... He was very encouraging of her mission to break his fictional record, No Hard Feelings. And with his blessing, she returned back to San Francisco and then to New York City on January 25th of 1890, 72 days, 6 hours, 11 minutes and 14 seconds after she left. Nice. She later wrote on Pullman Strikes and interviewed Susan B. Anthony before marrying a steel mogul named Robert Seaman. Of the Ironclad Manufacturing Company. And they mainly made milk cans, barrels, and other steel products. But she eventually patented her own design for a milk can. And in 1904, Robert died. And she took over the company, becoming the world's leading female industrialist. However, unfortunately, by 1914, apparently there was some embezzling going on with some employees at the company. And it went bankrupt. But not to be deterred. She decided she would just go to Europe and visit a friend in Austria. What year is this? 1914. Seems like a bad idea. It was. Well, depending was on... It? Depending. World War One started, and so naturally, she turned around and came home. Just kidding. She wrote <laughs> back to New York and was like, hey, I'm here. I'll cover it. Give me Hearst. <laughs> Basically. She got in touch with author Brisbane, who was an editor at a Hearst paper, the New York Evening Journal, and signed up as a war correspondent. And she became the first female war correspondent in American history and spent five years covering the events of the war in Europe from the front lines. She was arrested in Hungary under suspicion of being a British spy, but her inquisitor recognized her name and set her free immediately after getting an autograph, I'm sure. But she continued writing a column when she returned home and did philanthropic work for poor women, widows, and children until she died in 1922. Wait, she's... She's dead? She's dead. What does this have to do with anything? (laughs) Oh, sorry. I think you skipped something. I was having fun. She's a lovely character, isn't she? Does she get committed? Well, on purpose. What? Yes. She made her first big break for a Pulitzer paper way, way back in 1887 when she was just 23 years old. She went undercover. To find out more about the conditions at Blackwell's Island. What's Blackwell's Island? An asylum. Tell me more. So she began her ruse by putting on some older clothes and striking out with 70 cents in her pocket because she believed the sooner she ran out of money, the sooner people would believe she was insane. Now for this exercise, she used the code name Nellie Brown so that all of her monograms would make sense. Been reading some spy stories? Very much. So she decided her first stop should be at a boarding house where she would be kind of public-private, you know? Where she can let her crazy be known. Yes, so she goes to a boarding house to make people think she's crazy. And she went to an all-women's facility where most of the women were working in the city. And then she began staging her case of insanity. And she would stare vacantly and feign amnesia. And most importantly, she avoided sleep. Her fellow boarders soon caught on and her roommate refused to sleep in the same room with her. But there was an older woman who was very kind, and her name was Mrs. Kane. Nellie writes, She came into my room and sat and talked with me for a long time, taking down my hair with gentle ways. She tried to persuade me to undress and go to bed, 
but I stubbornly refused to do so. During this time, a number of the inmates in the house had gathered around us. They expressed themselves in various ways. Poor loon, they said. Why, she's crazy enough. I'm afraid to stay with such a crazy being in the house. She will murder us all by morning. One woman was sending for policemen to take me at once. They were all in a terrible and real state of fright. Well, she was a pretty good actress. Yes, apparently. So after sleeping in the room with Nellie, Miss Kane, who had volunteered to share the space with the poor loon, reported that she had been dreaming of me. She had seen me, she said, rushing at her with a knife in my hand with the intention of killing her. So after even kindly Mrs. Kane is afraid of her, the police are called, and she was interviewed. What is your name? Nellie Brown, I replied with a little accent. I have lost my trunks and would like if you would help me find them. When did you come to New York? I did not come to New York. But you were in New York now. No, I said, looking as incredulous as I thought a crazy person could. I did not come to New York. So the police decide that she is probably crazy. But they lure her out in the street instead of dragging her out, promising to help her find those missing trunks. She keeps bringing up the trunks over and over again. And she's brought before Judge Duffy. The judge is told that she is a, quote, peculiar case and doesn't know who she is or where she came from. Poor child. She is well-dressed and a lady. Her English is perfect. And I would stake everything on her being a good girl. I am positive she is somebody's darling. I wish the reporters were here, he said. They would be able to find out something about her. Well, the reporters were there. Where they were. (laughs) Ah, the irony. So then she's taken to Bellevue for a diagnosis where... A doctor who examines her believes that she has been using belladonna. I thought I might as well be as truthful when I could without injuring my case, so I told him that I was nearsighted, that I was not the least ill, and that I had never been sick, and that no one had a right to detain me when I wanted to find my trunks. I wanted to go home. He wrote a lot of things in his notebook. I bet he did. It's then revealed to her that she's in a mental institution by a woman named Mrs. Scott, whom... Kind of seems like a bit of a bitch. Take off your hat. I shall not take off my hat. I am waiting for a boat, and I shall not remove it. Well, you are not going on any boat. You might as well know it now as later. You are in an asylum for the insane. Although fully aware of the fact, her unvarnished words gave me a shock. I did not want to come here. I am not sick or insane, and I will not stay. It will be a long time before you get out if you don't do as you are told. You might as well take off your hat, or I shall use force. And if I am not able to do it, I have but to touch a bell, and I shall get assistance. Will you take it off? No, I will not. I am cold, and I want my hat on. And you can't make me take it off. I shall give you a few more minutes, and if you don't take it off then, I shall use force. And I warn you, it will not be very gentle. If you take off my hat, I shall take off your cap. So now. So she's feisty. And she's, like she's really playing the part. She's doing some serious acting. So she's feeling up for the task when she's interviewed by a second doctor. What do you do in New York? Nothing. Can you work? Oh, no, senor. Tell me, are you a woman of the town? I do not understand you. I replied, heartily disgusted with him. I mean, have you allowed the men to provide for you and keep you? I felt like slapping him in the face, but I had to maintain my composure. So I simply said, I do not know what you are talking about. I have always lived at home. After this, I began to have a smaller regard for the ability of doctors than I ever had before. 
and a greater one for myself. I felt sure now that no doctor could tell whether people were insane or not, so long as the case was not violent. So wait, why is she call him senor? Oh, well, at one point somebody's like, oh, I recognize your accent. You're Cuban. And she's like, sure. And she speaks Spanish. Yes, from Mexico. So she just goes with it. She says she's from Cuba the whole time. Go with the flow. So Nellie spent the night in Bellevue with no heat, and the bed was poor, she says, and her room was locked from the outside. And this was all very distressing to her. But the next day she met with a doctor, who asked her if she saw faces on the wall, heard voices, and if there were voices, what did they say? And was she like, sure? Actually, she said she did hear voices, but she was only interested when she heard them talking about her, and not nearly as interested when they talked about other things. But she was referring to the people that she heard outside her room. Like, nice. It was very well set up. Very well done. But there was a woman who was in Bellevue with her named Tilly Mayard. And she wrote about her interview with that same doctor, Dr. Field. Have you just found out you're in an insane asylum? Uh, well, yes. My friend said that they were sending me to a convalescent ward to be treated for a nervous stability from which I'm suffering since my illness... I want to get out of this place immediately. Well, you won't get out in a hurry. If you know anything at all, you should be able to tell that I am perfectly sane. Why don't you test me? We know all we want to on that score, said the doctor, and he left the poor girl condemned to an insane asylum, probably for life, without giving her one feeble chance to prove her sanity. So it's at this point that they leave Bellevue and go to the ferry. And so the ferry is taking her to Blackwell Island, the big insane asylum right. for New York. Right. And there are various islands. One's an orphanage. One's a poor farm. One's Rikers. Lots of islands. None of them good. So she's proved to several medical doctors, policemen, a judge, and nurses that she was, quote, hopelessly insane, which she says, I found encouraging. It's like doing a good job. She's taken to the ferry. I was taken into a dirty cabin, where I found my companion seated on a narrow bench. The small windows were closed, and with the smell of the filthy room, the air was stifling. At one end of the cabin, there was a small bunk in such condition that I had to hold my nose when I went near it. A sick girl was put on it, an old woman with an enormous bonnet, and a dirty basket filled with chunks of bread and bits of scrap meat completed our company. The door was guarded by two female attendants. And I included that purely because the old woman in the bonnet with a basket with meat scraps in it is literally the most horrifying image ever. It is. Like, it sounds like something out of Lewis Carroll. Ooh, I was thinking, you know, like the cutaway scenes in Les Mis, like the most recent update where the people are so like disgusting on the streets. That's what it makes me think of. Upon arriving at the island, she asked one of her transporters, what is this place? He says, it's Blackwell's Island, an insane place where you'll never get out of. So that's pretty ominous. She says, poor women. They had no hopes of a speedy delivery. They were being driven to a prison through no fault of their own. In all probability for life, in comparison, how much easier it would have been to walk to the gallows than to this tomb of living horrors. She meets a woman named Louise Schatz, who only speaks German. And no one in the asylum can understand her or evaluate her properly, but she remains confined. Now, the other side of this that is really horrifying is people can't evaluate her, but also no one can explain to her where she is, why, or what is expected of her. And Nellie notes 
that even criminals are given interpreters and they have every chance to prove their innocence. And I think that's kind of a powerful point. And Nellie describes her first dinner at Blackwell's. Placed close together all along the table were large dressing bowls filled with a pinkish-looking stuff which the patients called tea. By each bowl was laid a piece of bread, thick-cut and buttered. A small saucer containing five prunes accompanied the bread. One fat woman made a mad rush, jerking up several saucers from those around her, and emptied their contents into her own saucer while holding her bowl she lifted up another and drained it in one gulp. This she did to a second bowl in a shorter time than it takes to tell it. Indeed, I was so amused by all her successful grabbings that when I looked at my own share, the woman opposite, without so much as a by-your-leave, grabbed my bread and left me without any. So after the highly civilized dinner, Nellie has the joy of partaking in yet another Blackwell's ritual. She and a group of women are taken to a large bathroom and told to undress. Nellie protested, and they told her that if she did not dress, she would be stripped by force. At this, I noticed one of the craziest women in the ward standing by a filled bathtub with a large, discolored rag in her hand. She was chattering away to herself and chuckling in a manner which seemed to me fiendish. So she's starting to put together what's about to happen, and she's afraid of the women undressing her, and so she does undress taking off everything except one garment. I have to assume that that's a slip. It doesn't say. It's what makes the most sense to me. But then the nurses strip that off of her. So she hurries into the bath to obscure herself from the view of all the people in the room. Now remember, this is 1880s, and we're highly Victorian in our sensibilities, and we're not going to be naked in a room full of people if we can help it. So already we're traumatized. But in addition to the being naked in full view of other humans, which is highly taboo at this moment in time. The water in the bath is ice cold. And the crazy woman mentioned earlier is the one who scrubs her. She says, I can find no other word to express it, but scrubbing. So it's this other patient, not a nurse, scrubbing her. And then she's held underwater briefly before four buckets of water are poured over her head. And she's hustled out and dried off and given something like a slip. I'm assuming it, she says it's not a nightgown, but I'm not really clear on what it was. And she's sent to bed with wet hair. The sanitary conditions throughout this process are very, very wanting. The water was not changed between patients. And the same towels were used for one woman after another, even those with open sores and blisters. And rags were reused as well. So after the bath, things do not improve much. Remember, there is no heat and they can't dry their hair. And they're sleeping on straw mattresses between oilcloth on bottom and a small wool blanket on top. And not given a nightgown. And all I can wonder is if they have socks. And she never mentioned socks. And I'm just horrified by the thought of their feet being bare in this very cold room. And I imagine they're very uncomfortable. But the next morning, they are all lined up in the bathroom. And six combs are used to comb out the hair of all of the women on Hall 6. And all I can think about or fleas and lice and things of that nature. But remember, we're in 1887, so all of the women have incredibly long hair. We have not yet entered the bobbed world of the 1920s. And so they all have this waist-length hair that was scrubbed with soap by the crazy woman before they slept on straw all through the night. And Nellie says, oh, that combing. I never before realized with the expression, I'll give you a combing mint, but I knew then. My hair was all matted and wet from the previous night, 
and it was pulled and jerked, and after expostulating to no avail, I set my teeth and endured the pain. Her hair was pulled back into a braid. None of the patients were allowed to have hairpins, and this was quite demoralizing. Now, the food at Blackwell's was a real concern or issue for Nellie. For example, the butter that was put on the bread that they were given was often spoiled, and all of the food was laid out before they were brought into the dining hall, so you could not not have butter on your bread unless you specially requested it. And so one night, after seeing that their butter was spoiled, she asked for plain bread, and she said, I cannot tell you of anything which is the same dirty black color. It was hard, and in places nothing more than dried dough. I found a spider in my slice, so I did not eat it. She also mentioned spoiled meat and fish boiled in water and served cold with no seasoning at all, no salt on anything. She talks a lot about the salt. And there was no sugar or milk for the tea, no cutlery. And at first, like, that seems like a very dainty, like, just complaint. But you have to consider that many of these patients don't have teeth. For example, one night they were given boiled beef and a whole boiled potato, and there were many women at the table who could eat nothing. Nellie didn't eat anything for the first two days that she was at Blackwell's, but she said she didn't know if she felt worse after she started forcing the food down or when she was hungry. I cannot imagine sitting there and, like, having to eat that food. Like, that or starve. I mean, you have to. After two days of not eating, you have to do it. But cold fish, cold boiled fish. Spoiled butter on bread. That is the proper noise. A lot of the patients just stopped eating and some of them were force fed as a result, which was at this time a kind of abominable practice. You can actually read a lot about that if you read about suffragists from the era because a lot of them went on hunger strikes that would eventually end in force feeding. It's really nasty. But to add insult to injury, when they went on their walks, the women were able to see the food that was prepared for the doctors and the nurses at the facility. And Nellie says, There we got glimpses of melons and grapes, of all kinds of fruits, and beautiful white bread and nice meats, and the hungry feeling would be increased tenfold. Now, in contrast with her feelings on the food, she had initially been very impressed with how clean the place was, especially in the common rooms. But she was surprised to learn, It is not the attendants who keep the institution so nice for the poor patients, as I'd always thought, but the patients who do it all themselves, even to cleaning the nurses' bedrooms and caring for their clothes. Now, they were allowed a little bit of recreation, or as Nellie refers to it, Chapter 12, Promenading with Lunatics. The women were allowed out in the yard, and they wore straw hats with thin shawls, and she makes a big point about talking about how silly these straw hats are she says they're like what bathers wear at coney island and they're supposed to be serving the purpose of winter hats which would in fact keep your head warm and they're made of straw so i don't know how much good they did and it's very cold this is a major theme they were allowed to wear an underskirt and a cotton dress there's no mention of anything like underwear scarves warm hats or gloves it does not sound much like recreation to me But anyway, they're permitted to walk in pairs around the yard. The only amusement, if it can be so called, given the patients outside, is a ride once a week, if the weather permits, on the merry-go-round. And yes, yes I have. I have looked up and down all around everywhere I can for pictures of the Blackwell's Asylum merry-go-round, and I am yet to find one. 
I would really, really like pictures of the Black Holes Asylum merry-go-round. If anyone knows where I can locate such, let me know. She says, it is a change, and so they accept it with some show of pleasure. There's also a scrub bush factory, a mat factory, and a laundry, where all the mild patients work. They get no recompense for it, but they get hungry over it. But while they're out doing another little promenade two-by-two in their big straw hats, they encounter the women from another ward. And she asks Miss Neville who they are. Miss Neville responds, They are considered the most violent on the island. They are from the lodge, the first building with the high steps. Some were yelling, some were cursing, others were singing or praying or preaching as fancy struck them, and it made the most miserable collection of humanity that I have ever seen. And as the din of their passing faded, in the distance there came another sight I can never forget. A long cable rope fastened to wide leather belts, and these belts locked around the waist of fifty-two women. And at the end of the rope there was a heavy iron cart, and in it two women, one nursing a sore foot, another screaming at some nurse, saying, You beat me! I shall not forget it! You want to kill me! And then she would cry and sob. So they were on a rope? Yes. They were actually attached. Each of them had like a waist manacle, from what I can understand. And that was like, each of those were attached to a long rope. And I think there was a cart at the head where the women who couldn't walk were. So it was like a literal term. Yes, they were literally on the rope. The women on the rope, as patients call it, were each busy on their own individual freaks. Some were yelling all the while. One who had blue eyes saw me look at her, and she turned as far as she could, talking and smiling, with this terrible, horrifying look of absolute insanity stamped on her. The doctors might safely judge her case. Oh, the horror of that sight, to one who has never been near an insane person before was something unspeakable. God help me, breathed Miss Neville. It is so dreadful I cannot look. Before they went in, Nellie noticed that on the wall there was painted a motto. While I live, I hope. The absurdity of it struck me forcibly. As she spends more and more time at Blackwell's, she begins kind of accumulating these themes, kind of citing things like the food. And another one of those things is the cold. And it's a major concern for her because... It's not yet late enough in the year for them to turn on the heat. And so they are really facing the elements each night. Even though they're inside, it is just a big stone building on a little island in the harbor, and it is incredibly cold. Nearly all night long, I listened to a woman cry about the cold and beg for God to let her die. Another one yelled, Murder! at frequent intervals, and police! at others, until my flesh felt creepy. She recounts the story of an elderly woman who was brought in during her stay. The woman seems disoriented and tired and is having a hard time keeping herself sitting up on a bare bench in the common room. She cries to the nurses, Oh, give me a pillow and pull the covers up over me. I am so cold. At this I saw Miss Group, one of the nurses, sit down on her and run her cold hands over the old woman's face and down the inside of her neck of her dress. At the old woman's cry she laughed savagely. I never thought you could take that, I'm putting my cold feet on you and make it a torture device. Even though it feels that way sometimes. But someone who suffered particularly from the cold was Miss Tilly Mayard. And that's who she came over with from Bellevue. Yes. And so she felt very close to her. And if you'll remember, she was physically ill when this began. 
that's what she had gone. She tried to go convalesce after an illness. Well, it was like a nervous. Well, she said she was left was. with some nerves after she was sick. Is what she said. A nerve debility after she was sick. Mm-hmm. Whatever that means. Exactly. But the cold and lack of food and the stress of being in an insane asylum when you didn't mean to be kind of started to get to her. And she was about to faint in the common room. And Nellie confronted the nurses and she says, it's cruel to lock people up and then freeze them, I said. And they replied that she had as much as any of the rest and she would get no more. And just then, Miss Mayard took a fit and every patient looked frightened. Miss Neville caught her in her arms and held her. Although the nurses roughly said, let her fall to the floor and it will teach her a lesson. But Nellie's then called to the administrator's office after the scene unfolds. And when she explains that she has noticed things about the condition, the doctor with whom she's speaking asks if she needs medical aid, and she says no, that he should go see about Miss Mayard. So he does. And Miss Mayard is still in the fit, and she says he caught her roughly between the eyebrows, or thereabout, and pinched until her face was crimson from the rush of blood to her head, and her senses returned. All day afterward, she suffered from a terrible headache, and from that on, she grew worse. So what's he doing there? Is that a technical maneuver? Kind of, actually. What is it? Um, he's trying to see if her seizure's real or fake. So if you're having a real seizure and you induce pain, you're not going to respond to it. You're going to have your seizure. So she was faking a seizure or like... Well, she was probably having kind of a nervous attack, like uh, an anxiety attack. But he yeah. snapped her out of it. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what he was doing. I mean, obviously we don't do it like that, but... Yeah, if you see, like, someone that's having a seizure and you're pretty sure it's fake, you can just, like, pinch them, and <laughs> they'll come out of it, and it's a really- Are you pinching babies at work? Is that what you're doing? Kids. But it's a really great way to tell if someone's having a seizure or not. Which is useful information. Yes. <laughs> but Nellie discussed the issues with Dr. Ingram, who was the assistant superintendent of the asylum, and she said that he was very kind but seemed to feel very helpless. I began my old complaint of the cold, and he called Miss Grady to the office and ordered that more clothing be given to the patients. Miss Grady said that if I made a practice of telling, it would be a serious thing for me. She warned me in a time. Don't go tattling. Nope. Not fond of the tattle. But then we get to the really, really egregious problems with Blackwells, and Nellie encounters several instances of extreme physical abuse that I believe was not done to see if someone's faking a seizure. (laughs) So one patient was committed during her stay, and she greatly amused and irritated the nurses. And her name was Urena Little Page, and she had a singular persistent delusion. Urena, said Miss Grady, the doctor said that you were 33 instead of 18. The other nurses laughed. They kept this up until the simple creature began to yell and cry, saying she wanted to go home and that everybody treated her badly. And after they'd gotten all the amusement out of her that they wanted, and she was crying, they began to scold her and tell her to keep quiet. But she grew more hysterical every moment until they pounced upon her and slapped her in the face and knocked her head in a lively fashion. This made the poor creature cry more. And so they choked her. Yes, actually choked her. And then they dragged her out to the closet. I heard her terrified cries hush into smothered ones, and after several hours' absence, she returned to the sitting room, and I plainly saw the marks of their fingers on her throat for the entire day. The punishment seemed to awaken their desire to administer more. They returned to the sitting room and caught one of the old gray-haired women, 
whom I have heard addressed both as Miss Grady and Miss O'Keefe. She was insane, and she talked almost continually to herself and to those near her. She never spoke very loud, and at the time I speak of was sitting harmlessly chattering to herself. They grabbed her, and my heart ached as she cried, For God's sake, ladies, don't beat me! Shut up, you hussy! said Miss Grady, and she caught the woman by her gray hair and dragged her shrieking and pleading from the room. She was also taken to the closet. Her cries grew lower and lower and then ceased. The nurses returned to the room, and Miss Grady remarked that she had settled the old fool for a while. I told the physicians of the occurrence, but they did not pay any attention to it. And then one day, an insane woman was brought in, and she was quite noisy, and Miss Grady gave her a beating and blackened her eye, and when the doctors noticed it, they asked if that was done before she came there, and the nurses said, of course it was. Of course! Now, the patients who were unable to care for themselves were not looked after by the nurses, but by other patients, and Nellie describes the conditions in which those women lived as beastly. She then tells the story of Louise, a pretty German girl at least according to Nellie, who had become very sick with a fever and eventually began having delusions and seeing her dead parents. And she told Nellie about the brutal treatment at Bellevue. Oh, I pray nightly to be taken to my mama and my papa. One night I was confined at Bellevue and Dr. Field came in. I was in bed and weary of the examination. At last I said, I am tired of this. I will talk no more. Won't you? He said angrily. I'll see if I can't make you. And with this he laid his crutch on the side of the bed and, getting up on it, he pinched me severely in the ribs. I jumped straight up in bed and said, What do you mean by this? I want to teach you to obey when I speak to you. He replied, If only I could die and go to Papa. When I left, she was confined to bed with a fever. And maybe by this time she has had her wish. And then the, she tells the story that I found very troubling because of the this ambiguity. This one? Okay. Because of the ambiguity. All troubling. They're all very troubling. You're right. She tells the story of a woman named Sarah Fishbaum who only speaks Hebrew, which who knows what that means. And the nurse said that her husband had put her in the asylum because, quote, she had a fondness for other men more than himself. Sounds like a good reason. Really? But the nurses responded to this information by coaxing her to flirt with the doctors and asking her which of the men on staff she preferred and arranging for her to be alone with the men. Well, that, that's starting to sound sketchy. Yeah. It's like kind of written in such a way to make it seem like they're trying to make her make a fool out of herself. But then... She's a smart girl. Nellie. Yeah. I kind of think they're just trying to allow the male staff sexual access to this woman. That's what it sounds like. And that's really fucked up. And then there's a story of a woman named Margaret who had been a cook and she was extremely neat. And one day she scrubbed the kitchen floor... And two chambermaids working in the same facility where she is come in and soil it deliberately just to be assholes. And, and so then, she gets mad. Yeah. And then they pronounce her mad. Because she's mad. <laughs> because she's... She's mad mad. She's mad mad. And an officer's called and she's taken away to the asylum. And she says, how can they say I'm insane? I'm merely because I allowed my temper to run away with me. Other people are not shut up for crazy when they get angry. I suppose the only thing to do is keep quiet and so avoid the beatings which I see others get. No one can say a word about me. I do everything I am told and all the work they give me. I'm obedient in every respect and I do everything to prove that I am sane. So really, whenever women were put into situations like this, I mean, there was no way for them to get out unless someone came in 
got them out. Right. Because like the more you're like, hey, I'm really not crazy, the crazier you sound. And actually Nellie says it's like a rat trap. It's very easy to get in. Very hard to get out of. Right. You have to have a family of means, a husband that's decided. You can come home because he needs laundry done. He's, He's done with his mistress time. Whatever it may be, someone has to come get you out. And then one night, Bly is not able to sleep. And a night nurse comes in her room to check on her. And she sees that she's awake. And so she goes away and she's like, good, she went away. And then she comes back and she's holding a glass. And Nellie does not like the look of this. And she says that it's going to help make her go to sleep. And Nellie's like, "Uh uh-uh. So the nurse leaves again. She's like, phew, good. And then she comes back with the doctor. And she insists, and the doctor's like, you really need to drink this. And But she's like, I did not want to lose my wits, not even for a few hours. Smart girl. Smart girl. He, she goes on to say, when he saw that I was not to be coaxed, he grew rather rough and said he wasted too much time with me already, that if I did not take it, he would put it in my arm with a needle. And it occurred to me that if he put it in my arm, I could not get rid of it. But if I swallowed it, there was hope. So I said I would take it. I smelt it, and it smelt like laudanum, and it was a horrible dose. No sooner had they left my room and locked me in than I tried to see how far down my throat my finger would go, and the chloral was allowed to try its effect elsewhere. What's laudanum? Oh, we talked about it. It's like an opiate derivative. Would it make you sleep? Oh, yeah. Among other things? Oh, yeah. Was it commonly given as a sedative? <laughs> yeah. It okay. was commonly taken all the time. It was the aspirin of the day. Oh, good. Oh, good. Around the same time, Tilly, her friend from Bellevue, gets worse. And she had been trying to maintain her sanity and memory by singing. But then the nurses became very annoyed by this. And they ordered her to stop. And maybe coincidentally, maybe not, I don't know. She started to get this very persistent delusion. And she thought that Nellie was pretending to be her and that she was really... Nelly. That's a confusing delusion. It is, but she believed that like all the people who came to visit Nelly were actually coming to see her and that Nelly was stealing them. I need a diagram. I know, right? And she said, I tried to reason with her but found it impossible, so I kept away from her as much as possible, lest my presence should make her grow worse and feed the fancy. She's kind of now lost her friend. But then she still has another goal, an additional goal. She'd wanted to get admitted to the violent wards. Why? No, bad idea. Good story, bro. Dude, you got a good story. So she runs into a woman named Mrs. Cotter. And Mrs. Cotter, who she describes as a pretty delicate woman, was walking in the yard when she noticed her husband approaching for a visit. Hooray, that's great. My and, husband's actually visiting. Yeah, right? And she's so excited that she gets out of line and runs to him. No. She gets out of line. Literally. Literally gets out of line. And in response, she was sent to the retreat. The remembrance of that is enough to make me mad. Crying, the nurses beat me with a broom handle and jumped on me, injuring me internally so I shall never get over it. They tied my hands and feet and throwing a sheet over my head, twisted it tightly around my throat so I could not scream, and thus put me in a bathtub filled with cold water. And they held me under, until I gave up every hope and became senseless. At other times they took hold of my ears and beat my head on the floor or against the wall, and they pulled my hair out by the roots so that it will never grow again. Was she able to talk her into not going to the violent ward? Well, 
she was pretty well talked out of it by them, but she wasn't completely sold until she showed her the visible broom-shaped depression in her head and the bald spots on her scalp. Sounds like evidence to me. I'll believe it. But there's another woman named Bridget McGinnis who also made a very good case for not getting admitted to the violent wards. Nellie says that she seemed sane enough, but for whatever reason in the past, she'd been sent to retreat for and put on the rope line. The beating I got there was something dreadful. I was pulled round by my hair and held under the water until I strangled, and I was choked and kicked. The nurses would always keep a quiet patient stationed at the window to tell them when any of the doctors were approaching. It was hopeless to complain to the doctors, for they always say it's in the imagination of our diseased brains. And besides, we'd get another beaten for telling. They would hold patients underwater and threaten to leave them to die there if they did not promise not to tell the doctors. After breaking a window, I was transferred to the lodge, the worst place on the island. It's dreadfully dirty in there and the stench is awful. In the summer, the flies swarm the place. The food is worse than what we get in other wards. And we are given only tin plates. Instead of bars being on the outside, as in this ward, down the inside. There are many quiet patients there who've been there for years, but the nurses keep them to do the work. Among other beatings I got there, the nurses jumped on me once and broke two of my ribs. Oh, that is so painful. While I was in there, a pretty young girl was brought in. She'd been sick and fought against being put in that dirty place. And one night, the nurses took her, and after beating her, they held her naked in a cold bath and then threw her on the bed. When morning came, the girl was dead. The doctor said she died of convulsions, and that was all that was done about it. They inject so much morphine and chloral in the patients that they are made crazy. I've seen patients wild for water from the effect of the drugs, and the nurses would refuse it to them. I've heard women beg for a whole night for one drop, and it's not given them. I cried for water until my mouth was so parched and dry I could not speak. Sound like a big group of sadists. Like, how do you organize that many terrible people to be in one place? Oh, well, that's, that's not that hard. You just have to set it as the norm. I so don't want that to be true. There are a thousand examples. I know, and I don't like any of them. But she does encounter people who are actually mad during her time. And I don't know if it's something about the contrast or something about the difference between madness and sort of imprisonment that really impresses upon her the need for reform. But she describes... Well, I mean, like, we use the term madness in the colloquial term from that time, of course. You know, it's hard to say what they had. You can listen to their descriptions and say maybe they had, you know, most likely like a schizophrenia or a bipolar disorder or things like that, but it's hard to say because they had such a tacit understanding of things. Well, I mean, I'm talking about the women who are highly delusional. Right, right. But it's still hard to say exactly what the cause is. Well, isn't it hard to say now? Mm, I go with a little better understanding of things. I mean, a little, uh, yes. She says, one of the most pitiful delusions of any of the patients was that of a blue-eyed Irish girl who believed she was forever damned because of one act in her life. Her horrible cry, morning and night, was, I am damned for all eternity. I would strike horror to my soul. Her agony seemed like a glimpse into the inferno. Some serious Catholic guilt. Oh, yeah. The day Pauline Moser was brought to the asylum, we heard the most horrible screams, and an Irish girl, only partly dressed, came staggering like a drunken person up the hall, yelling, Hurrah! 
three cheers, I've killed the devil, Lucifer, 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 and so on over again. She would pull out a handful of hair while she was exultingly crying. How I deceived the devils. They always said God made hell, but he didn't. Pauline helped the girl to make the place hideous by singing the most horrible songs. After the Irish girl had been there an hour or so, Dr. Dent came in, and as he walked down the hall, Miss Group whispered to the demented girl, Here is the devil coming. Go for him. Surprised that she would give a madwoman such instructions, I fully expected to see the frenzied creature rush at the doctor. Luckily, she only commenced to repeat her refrain of, Oh, Lucifer, Lucifer, Lucifer. After the doctor left, Miss Group again tried to excite the woman by saying that a picture of a minstrel on the wall was the devil, and the poor creature began to scream, You devil! I'll give it to you! Oh my god, this is so fucked up. So the two nurses had to sit on her and keep her down. The attendants seemed to find amusement and pleasure in exciting the violent patients to do their worst. Also describes women who are catatonic. I've wondered if behind those sealed lips were dreams we cannot know of, or if it was all blank. In what might be called schizophrenia today, patients who were always conversing with invisible parties who seemed wholly unconscious of their surroundings. Some women were manic and some were depressed and many were suicidal. But she even reports that a baby was born while she was there and that upset her. Yes, a baby. Think of it. A little innocent babe born into such a chamber of horrors. I can imagine nothing more terrible. But eventually, Bly was released when the paper's lawyer came for her. And she wrote up the story of her experience and published it as a serial in the world. And after publication, she was called to testify before a grand jury. Oh, wow. That's great. Yes. And she gladly goes. And they're like, would you come back to the island with us? And she's like, yep. Hell bet, yeah. You bet your sweet ass I will. And they're going. And I want to surprise them. But when they get there, Nellie very quickly realizes that someone has tipped them off. They stopped at Bellevue first. Oh, and she thinks that's when they found out. And she's really concerned because the conditions are so improved to her mind. She's like, oh, no way in hell they're going to do anything because it seems perfectly fine now. But everyone that goes to see it is so horrified by the conditions, even though they have improved. That just tells you how bad it was. Right. That they spend a million dollars. Wow. A million dollars trying to reform the asylums in New York City. And that's how Nellie Bly got her big break in investigative reporting. Well, that was circuitous. Like the Naram term. Well, so you do start to see a move towards trying to treat these people with mental illness with, you know, like psychiatry, the beginnings of psychiatry. You start to see a little bit of allopathic medicine take a foothold. Alopecia. No, it's like what we have, like what real You don't have alopecia. Is. No, I don't. So allopathic is like not osteopathic? Right, like what you would consider most doctors. Modern medicine. Yeah. Okay. And you start to see this preventive role in psychiatry with like Freud's theories of neuroses and stress that we can kind of do something about it. Right, if we just blame the mother hard enough, everyone will feel better. But at the end of the 19th century, psychology was linked to these popular mind cure movements as william james called them so this is the moment in time when william james is in the middle of an epic struggle to get psychology taken out of the philosophy department at harvard right they're like it's just a fancy way to think and he's like no it's but it's real and ghost by the way 
ghost. Also ghost. But if you can believe that there is some kind of like invisible force inside the body that makes people act the way they do, you can believe in ghosts at this moment in time. I don't know. <laughs> Why? Well, so and he was fighting against that view that this was associated with things like the Christian Science Church or the Emmanuel Movement. And you had psychiatrists that had asylums that were writing things saying like, no, no, no. We use psychotherapy. It's diametrically opposed to the superstitious and anti-scientific practices of lay healers and non-medical practitioners. Also ghost. This point could not be too strongly emphasized. And we don't have any ghosts here. Also ghost. But you do start to see that movement. And in one place, it's called kind of like a mental hygiene movement. In 1908, Clifford Beers publishes his autobiography, A Mind That Found Itself. It was wildly popular and had a foreword by William James. That man did nothing but write. Right? And it was kind of like an expose. discussed his mental illness and the horrid treatment that he had at the Connecticut State Mental Hospital for the Insane in Middleton. It's the worst thing that's ever happened in Connecticut. (laughs) To quote, he observed that the patients who were passive and self-sufficient, requiring little attention were also generally those who least needed treatment. In contrast, the patients who were infirm or needed assistance were often abused due to the very helplessness which necessitated aid from the staff. Treatment for some of the violent or troublesome patients was a padded cell that left them half-frozen for days at a time. Other irksome patients were assigned to the violent wards where the loud noises and horrendous smells constituted an exquisite torture. So it's a paradox. We call it paradox? Well, so you start to see this like movement towards improving conditions in asylums. People start to try to incorporate psychiatry into it. And then, and then we start to see these new medical somatic treatments from Europe come over in the 20s and 30s. And people started to use them because, well, we got to try something. And psych was still that new kind of newfangled thing. Is this where we get that moment with, like, Kellogg? He's more with the moral movement. Oh, okay. Even though he had, like, the, the gyrators and things? Yeah, with the moral movement. Okay, okay. So these are things that are a little more rooted in science. So one that really took hold early on was something called fever therapy. That sounds pleasant. So Jules Wagner-Jurag at the University of Vienna had observed that his mental symptoms of his mentally ill patients disappeared whenever they had a serious febrile illness. So he had one patient that had erysipelas, which is like a deep-seated skin infection caused by strep. And so his idea was to take this strep bacterium and inject it into people and try to induce fever. And... That didn't go so well. Well, I would think some people would die of things. Well, and so he then he was like, he really felt like he was on to something. Mm-hmm. And he started to experiment with using a new tuberculin vaccine that had been developed. For TB, like, you know, when they cough in a handkerchief in a movie and there's blood. Yes. This was known to induce fevers. And so he's like, this is perfect. But he stopped using it when reports came out that it was pretty toxic and had deadly effects. Uh, we'd rather maybe them be crazy than dead. Now, spoilers, when he received his Nobel Prize in Aww. 1927, he was discussing his early fever therapy trial, saying, It was an unfortunate experiment that I hardly had the authority to carry on with. 
<laughs> Dr. Heal Thyself. But in 1917, he had his breakthrough. He came across a bacteria called Plasmodium vivax. Okay. Which causes malaria. Oh, my goodness. So a he's... mild form of malaria. Okay, so first he's got to get some mosquitoes wearing sweaters because he's in Vienna. And they don't have the many mosquitoes. Well, we... he was able to get a soldier that was brought in from the Italian front. They have mosquitoes there. Where they had shell shock. Mm-hmm. And malaria. Well, that is just lucky for you. So he took blood and injected it into a nearly dead neurosyphilitic patient. So that's like late third stage syphilis. So it's tertiary syphilis where you start to get your mental and psychiatric problems that go along with syphilis. And since they didn't have penicillin yet. Mm-hmm. Malaria was the next best thing. Well, you had mercury. <laughs> so he took his blood with malaria in it, gave it to his nearly dead neurosyphilitic patient. Takes about a week of an incubation. Patient will begin to have chills and nausea along with raging fevers up to 106 degrees. So now you have tertiary syphilis and malaria. You are having a good time. But he noted that after the sixth febrile attack, the patient began to stop his syphilitic convulsions. Now, the great thing about malaria at this time is that there was a treatment for it. Hmm. Quinine, which is still used today, and yes, is in your tonic water. What? So it's in tonic water. Like if you have like a gin and tonic, it has quinine in it. So yay, drink gin and tonic, less malaria. Hey, good reason to drink a gin and tonic. So after the ninth attack, the patient was given quinine, and he was eventually discharged because it worked. Did he just, like, figure out how to, like, hotwire syphilis? Right. He hotwired the immune system to where it would turn it on and it would be able to fight the syphilis. And it was very successful. He won the Nobel Prize for it. And you can talk about how ethical it would be to give someone malaria, but they could treat it. It was a rarely fatal disease. And there was no other way to treat this. You had neurosyphilis, you died. Unless you got malaria. This seems so counterintuitive. It seems that way. Now, this was commonly used with syphilitics in the United States. And like I said, he won a Nobel Prize for this. But since it worked on syphilitic patients with mental problems, you know what we should try? Trying it on things that are not a bacterial infection. Right. Which is, like, just my guess, not going to work. Well, so... Earlier, I mentioned the New Jersey State Lunatic Asylum, mm-hmm. which was founded by Dorothea Dix. Mm-hmm. So eventually, the director in 1907 was Dr. Henry Cotton. So Dr. Cotton, who had trained at Johns Hopkins, had trained under some of the best people, heard about this. So he's legit. He's like, I'm going to try this out with my mentally ill patients. He figured there had to be something wrong in their body that maybe all mental illness is caused by an infection. Oh, well, that would be handy as a pocket on a shirt. I tell you what. So now he did treat patients with fever therapy, but he also would cure them by removing the offending infection. First starting by removing patients' teeth. Uh-huh. But then he soon moved on to other body parts. No. Gallbladder, stomach, ovaries, testicles, tracts of the colon. You need your stomach. Uteruses. You don't really need a yeah. uterus. And he claimed a cure rate of 85%. 
Which means he was just doing it on people who weren't crazy. Well, it's probably just really bad numbers because he had an extremely high mortality rate. Oh, and, they just don't count. And they was, yeah. And he was not getting consent of the patients. Oh, my God. That wasn't really the norm then. It seems like you should have to have someone's permission to take their stomach. I'm just saying. So while this did help to cure neurosyphilis, it was not at all useful in schizophrenic patients. Right, because that's, you know, not a bacterial infection. Right. Even though there was mounting evidence it didn't work, people kept using it. Because what else do you do with them? What are we going to do? They started finding other better ways, in their mind, to induce fever in patients. So one not that frequently used way was to induce aseptic meningitis Ah, by injecting via lumbar puncture inactivated horse serum. First of all, what is horse serum? I know what a little horse is, but what's a horse serum? <laughs> it's kind of, kind of when you take the red blood cells out. So like a plasma, basically? Kind of, yeah. So activated horse serum injected directly into the spinal cord. Yes, which will... will Do stuff. Yeah, it'll cause your immune system to kick in. Now, they also would use fever cabinets, which is kind of a generic name because there were lots of versions of them. But in general, they were kind of coffin-shaped. Oh, well, that's a positive start. And close the body, leave the head out. They had like radiators or light bulbs, etc. that were designed to raise the internal body temperature up to 105 degrees. So like a tanning bed? I think a little less comfortable. Oh. Now they did run into some early problems with this, such as nausea, vomiting, cramping, drops in blood pressure. Because the patients were so profusely sweating, mm. they were losing a lot of salt. So they basically gave them the equivalent of Gatorade while doing it instead of stopping. Go sit in the hot box and drink your Gatorade, Timmy, and just shut up. But it was standard protocol in some places to confine neurosyphilitics for as long as seven consecutive hours over several days to something similar to a fever cabinet. Oh, my God. Well, I mean, at least then you don't have to worry about what to do with them. You know where they are? It's like having a bell on a cat. I don't know. It seems really unethical. Yeah. So in 1922... Scientists discovered this new compound in the body. It's called insulin. Oh no, let's use it on everything. Let's try it on everything. Do they really try it on everything? Let's see what it helps. Let's try it on everything. And so they do. Oh good. So Manfred Sackel, a physician working in Berlin, noticed that whenever he gave his patients suffering from opiate withdrawal insulin, it would reduce their anxiety, nervousness, tremors, vomiting, weight loss, and agitation. So insulin is what your pancreas makes. All right, so your, your pancreas makes insulin, and it's used to get the sugar in your blood into your cells, like into your body. So it can be used for energy. Okay, so when someone's going through opiate withdrawals, you help them basically metabolize sugar more efficiently, and they don't feel like they're dying as much? They can. Okay. So sometimes, he would give a little too much insulin. Well, that's going to happen. And the patient would go into a stupor. And after such events, he noted that the patients were less argumentative, less hostile, and less aggressive. So, is he really saying, like, let's just turn it off and then turn it back on again? Kind of. Is he pulling the ultimate rookie IT guy move? Just flip the switch a few times. Do you shake it? Just try shaking it, spinning it. 
Did you blow on the cartridge? <laughs> so one of his addicted patients was also schizophrenic. He gave him a little too much insulin. And he was slipped into a coma. See you in a few days, pal. And when revived with glucose, he found that many of his symptoms had subsided. He thought, I found the cure for schizophrenia. Oh my God. Holy shit. Well, that would be amazing. So he tried on a few animals and then he was like, I'm just going to try some people. Oh, well. And he did it on 58 patients with acute schizophrenia and 50... Had at least partial remission. Holy cow. Wait, why? Oh, we'll get there later. Okay. 50 out of 58? Right. That's statistically significant. (laughs) So he reported this to the Vienna Medical Society, and it really got out as a great treatment for schizophrenia. And he even toured North America to tout his new treatment and eventually immigrated. But the reason something like this can get out as a great cure for schizophrenia is because there is nothing else. That's a big thing to remember. Everyone's like, let's try something. So the New York Times even lauded it as one of the great milestones in the treatment of mental illness. Was it? It's a milestone. (laughs) By the mid-1930s, he was routinely using this treatment in psychotic illness. And he had a lot of criticism due to his lack of scientific evidence. And he replied... It would have been preferable to have been able to trace the cause of the disease first and then to follow the path by looking for a suitable treatment. But since it has so happened that we by chance hit upon the wrong end of the path, shall we undertake to leave it before alternatives present themselves? So just kind of saying what you said. It's working, right? We need to use it. (laughs) What else is there? One news reporter reported their experience witnessing this insulin shock therapy. In the special wards reserved at the Harlem Valley Hospital for the newly discovered insulin shock treatment, I saw some 15 patients stretched in death-like coma on their beds. At 7 o'clock that morning, each had received a huge dose by hypodermic injection of insulin. For nearly five hours after that, they lay unconscious, oblivious, alike to their actual surroundings and, presumably, to the unreal world of their disordered minds. At noon, I saw the patients awakened. This sweet, life-saving insulin, counteracting solution of sugar and water was poured into the stomach through a rubber hose inserted into the nostril. The waking process was horrible to watch. The patient retched and choked. They uttered terrifying animal-like sounds. Some vomited the vital sugar. There was not time to wipe up the vomitus or to change soiled bedding. Attendants moved swiftly, tightening restraints, sheets, to keep the awakening patients from throwing themselves out of bed as they thrashed about. Arms, rigid as boards, were thrust into the air. Fingers spread stiffly apart. Inhuman grimaces distorted the unconscious faces. The scene I witnessed at Harlem Valley Hospital is being repeated daily in the many public and private hospitals throughout the United States and foreign countries. Patiently, heroically, physicians and nurses and attendants are performing over and over again the deft, life-saving ministrations I watched. Okay, but like seriously, if this is working, why why do people stop? Because it's dangerous. How dangerous? Very dangerous. Very dangerous. Like... Mortality rate of five mm, percent ish. It's not great. And then, you know, you can you're inducing seizures, can cause pulmonary edema, respiratory distress, broken bones, all sorts of issues. Those aren't great. 
They're not great. And these are before physically healthy people, right? So if you kill 5% of this group of physically healthy people, you're really not doing great. Right. That's not a good outcome. But I mean, it was used throughout the world because it had at least some effect. It worked sometimes. Turn it off and turn it on again. Well, and so they noted they did do studies on the brain's electrical activity whenever they were doing this treatment. And they noticed that a more prolonged coma seemed to be the most beneficial and helped the brain establish new different brain rhythms or electrical activity. And they felt this is what was happening that was not encouraging psychotic thoughts. So the longer people were out, the better the rewiring. That's what they thought. Were they right? Not necessarily. We'll get uh. there. <laughs> okay, so where do we go from insulin? So the physician Van Meduna, a Hungarian physician, began to use a compound called metrazole. That sounds ominous. Now, he had heard about this insulin shock therapy, and he had also noted that epileptics are rarely schizophrenic. Hmm. So he decided that if he could induce seizures, he would also be able to induce the biological antagonism between the two illnesses. Oh my God, this sounds like Hippocrates. Like, it sounds like, oh, there's something maybe with epilepsy and melancholia, and maybe they're like both related, and let's just put them in a box and let them fight. In a way, in a way, it was. It sounds yeah. so pseudoscientific. Did it work? Well, <laughs> so they would take the patients and they'd place them on their back, limbs spread out, and administer the medication. They would pretty much immediately begin convulsions for at least a minute. And one patient described it this way. About 10 seconds after having received the injection, it is as if you are pulled out of yourself and into another world. But you can still see the person around you as if in a limpid fog. It is utterly unbearable and quite impossible to get out of. Sometimes the effect is stronger, sometimes weaker. When it's strong, you have hallucinations. The room you are lying in begins to look like hell, and as if you are burned by an invisible fire. It's very scary. But luckily, it's over now. So just a refreshing spa treatment? When so there again was some efficacy shown. It was working better than nothing, had lots of side effects. It was horrible for the patients. One Swiss psychiatrist stopped using the treatment because it caused agonizing fears of dying and crumbling away. It's oddly specific and awful. But by 1940, almost every asylum was using this treatment in the United States. Metrazole. Because it was safer than insulin. Uh-huh. It led to less fractures, less respiratory distress. It sounds like it led to some psychological distress, without a doubt. Well, that's what they were trying to undo. Right. Mm. And so they don't know what they're doing yet. They don't know why it's working. They just know that it is. They're literally throwing shit at the wall and seeing what sticks. They really are, because there are a million other treatments. I mean, some we talked about. I mean, they were using hydrotherapy, fever therapy, all these things that were not proven to work with mental patients, but these two were showing some promise, even if they were horrendous. And so they really take a hold. Now, things change again whenever World War II comes about. After 1945, there's this great emphasis upon shifting care away from hospitals into the community. 
The wars start to influence psychiatrists because they see the impact of environmental stress. And they start to also understand that non-institutional treatment can be beneficial. And by seeing how pervasive these illnesses were, this breadth of psychiatric illness became much more evident. It's not just the patients that are catatonic. It's not the severely schizophrenic patients that need help. There's this huge spectrum, Mm. huge spectrum of mental illness that we need to try and do something about. And you start to see this kind of divide between those institutions and the dynamic psychiatrists on the outside. And a lot of this has to do with PTSD. This is finally starting to be recognized as an actual mental illness. And a lot of soldiers came home from World War II. And they didn't have that idealized return home. where We put our guns away. We put our camo away. We were at peace and we were going to move into this perfect 1950s work, you know, go to college, get a job. Lots of people did, but there was a huge percentage that not only didn't, but couldn't because they were so affected by their experiences in the war. And this really gave a lot of people insight into mental illness because they really started to understand some of the things that could cause it and that it could happen to your brother or your buddy or your cousin. And it was really brought home after World War II. So this makes me think of a film called Let There Be Light. Directed by John Huston. That's the one. And again, this is there's a lot of information about John Huston and other directors who were sent out as part of the SIG Corp. Uh, propaganda units in a wonderful documentary that's available on Netflix called Five Came Back. If you still haven't watched it yet, what are you doing with your life? Pause. Go watch it. Go watch it. So Houston was a major in the Signal Corps and he was tasked with making a film on PTSD under the working title The Returning Psychoneurotics. That's what PTSD was called at the time. And he shot in Mason General Hospital in Long Island It was chosen because Houston said it was the biggest in the East and the officers and the doctors were the most sympathetic and willing. Each week, two groups of around 75 men were admitted to the hospital. And John Houston said, The goal was to restore these men physically, mentally, emotionally, within six to eight weeks, to the point where they could be returned to civilian life in as good condition, or almost as good, as when they came into the Army. And so he decided the best way to do this was to just follow one group of soldiers. I mean, this is the start of our modern documentary filmmaking. Absolutely. It was one of the first documentaries to feature unscripted interviews. So he also wrote the script as the film was shot instead of going in with like shots he wanted beforehand, which is something that we, you know, associate with documentaries now. And the purpose was to show how men who had suffered mental damage in service should not be written off, but could be helped by psychiatric treatment. The original idea was that the film be shown to those who would be able to give employment and industry to reassure them that the men discharged under this section were not insane, but were employable as trustworthy as everyone. It's so interesting to see that he started from that angle. Like, it still started from that kind of propagandistic angle. 
Well, it was what the army wanted. You know, right. like they the army commissioned these films. But without a doubt, that is not where it ended up. And so to catch key moments in the doctor-patient interaction, Houston's team of cameramen shot over 375,000 feet of film, close to 70 hours, for a final cut that would run less than an hour. The cameras ran continually, one on a patient and one on a doctor. We shot thousands of feet of film, most of which couldn't be used in the picture, just to be sure of getting extraordinary and completely unpredictable exchanges that sometimes occurred. And so when he wrapped up at filming, he hand-delivered a print to Washington, D.C., and believed that everything had been given the green light. However, a month later, in March 1946, word came that an order was issued restricting screenings to a handful of army hospitals and a few overseas military venues. There was too much truth. Oh, yes. He says, the reason that was given was that it violated the privacy of the patients involved. I don't think that was the real reason. The men who were in the picture, the patients whose recoveries we'd witnessed, were proud of what they saw of themselves on the screen. As a matter of form, we'd asked them to send releases, and they were happy to do so. We pointed this out to the War Department, but when they asked us to produce these releases, we discovered that they had mysteriously disappeared. One day, they were in the files in Astoria, and the next day, they were gone. We then pointed out that, though the film indeed represented a deeply personal investigation, into the innermost lives of these men, nothing was disclosed which might cause them to be ashamed. We proposed asking them individually to write letters of clearance, but the War Department said no. The authorities had made up their minds. In June 1946, the New York Museum of Modern Art thought that they had permission to do a screening, but Houston recalled, on the afternoon of the showing, a few minutes before it was going on, the screen two military policemen arrived and demanded the print, and of course it was given up. So this was suppressed for years, and I've watched it, and I see why. It's heartbreaking, and it's so real. So the film starts with all of our strapping soldiers returning home from war, victorious, in different kind of stock footage clips of the voiceover. The guns are quiet now. The papers of peace have been signed. And the oceans of the earth are filled with ships coming home. In faraway places, men dreamed of this moment. But for some men, the moment is very different than the dream. Here is human salvage, the final result of all that metal and fire can do to mortal flesh. Some wear the badges of their pain, the crutches, the bandages, the splints. Others show no outward signs, yet they too are wounded. These are the casualties of the spirit, the troubled in mind, men who are damaged emotionally, born and bred in peace, educated to hate war. They were overnight plunged into sudden and terrible situations. Every man has his breaking point, and these and the fulfillment of their duties as American soldiers were forced beyond the limit of human endurance. Here are men who tremble, men who cannot sleep, Men with pains that are nonetheless real because they are of mental origin. Men who cannot remember. Paralyzed men whose paralysis is dictated by the mind. Through all their stories run the one thread, death and the fear of death. And so the film is extraordinary. It's, of course, black and white. And it's got this really ghastly, almost like film noir lighting uh, that they don't try to doctor up. And it follows this group of men 
through their progress as they are going through their you know, eight weeks of treatment. And it's amazingly progressive, the things that you see happening. You know, they're encouraged to take classes in mechanics and work with miniatures just in an effort to give them something else to think about and re-exert control. There's also art therapy and music therapy and recreation that includes like gymnastics, basketball, baseball, team sports, try to give them something to root for, give them a purpose, give them some camaraderie. And one of the most important things that takes place are these big group therapy sessions that go on. And there's this amazing moment in the beginning when one of the clinicians is introducing himself and he says, don't mind the cameras, which is so out of, out of time. Don't mind the cameras. They're just here to see what's going on. It feels so modern in a way. It does. It, it, it is. It's, it's incredibly ahead of its time. And another amazing thing about this movie is that though the military would not be integrated for another few years, in 1943, the medical apparatus within the military, the hospitals, etc., were integrated. And so you have this group that is mixed race sitting out there and they're all talking about how they want a chance to prove their equality. They're white men saying this and they're black men saying like, you know, I've realized that I'm just like everyone else. And it's this really interesting undercurrent that runs through the film. And it seems perfectly natural now to watch it because it looks very modern. But at the time, I don't know that very many black and white men had been shown on screen together like that. And you have to wonder if that had something to do with the suppression of the film. I mean, maybe that was some of it, but I mean, I can see, you know, they cite that they were concerned that it might scare people off from joining and damn well, it should, it might have. (laughs) Well, the three most incredible things that happen over the course of the film is that they deal with a man who has paralysis, which is, they say is a conversion disorder. He's given a drug and, it's, it acts as a sedative and like supposedly opens him up to hypnosis and suddenly he's able to walk. And then there's another guy that develops a stutter and they give him a sedative and you know, do some magic psychotherapy and he's suddenly able to speak without a stutter. And that part of the film, the audio from that part of the film is amazing. He goes, he just keeps going, oh God, oh God, listen, listen, I can talk. I can talk. Do you hear me? Do you hear me? I can talk. Listen. Oh, God, there's nothing wrong. It's it's just heartbreaking and amazing to see. And then there's another man who was hit by shells in Okinawa. And from that moment on, had amnesia. And they show him being hypnotized. Which is really interesting in this setting because it's a an officer giving him orders. Yeah, it's almost like they're primed to do it. Makes sense. And he does. He goes so fast. He just goes so fast. And they put him through it and he literally recounts the battle as he's going through his hypnosis. And he has suppressed this memory until this point. And it is overwhelming. He is shuddering and shaking. He jumps in response to gunfire that's not there. He turns his head while he's in this like hypnotic state. It is bizarre and just visceral and sort of amazing. But those are the kind of cures that they're doing at this moment in time. And it does end with this triumphant all American baseball game. Of course. This is our apple pie. 
No, but there are beautiful nurses waving goodbye to them as they go home to rejoin the civilian world. Same thing. Yeah, basically, Miss, there's Miss American Pie. So for 30 years, the Army did suppress public showings. And the picture was eventually released in 1981 for a very limited run. And the Army did not supply the print for that. And they tried to send cease and desist orders, but it was like time, enough time had passed, et cetera, et cetera. But in 2012, after 65 years of being suppressed... The National Archives released an edited, updated, remastered version of the film. And that same year, it debuted at Cannes Film Festival. And it found a really strong chord with people because so many of the men coming home from our modern wars do deal with PTSD. And it made me think about this moment in the film when I was thinking about modern warriors, our modern soldiers seeing these men from the 40s go through psychiatric treatment. There's this moment in the film when one of the men in the group therapy session says, I was talking to my buddy about coming here, the hospital, and he said that all he could think about are those men from the last war, which would have been World War One. All the shell-shocked oh, patients. Oh, prevalent. And he said, you know, they just put them in Bellevue and they're all maniacs now. And I have to wonder, Doc, are we going to end up like them? And he was speaking some truth because the burden of the psychiatric illness that came home with our boys from the European and Pacific front was so great, along with the psychiatric illness that is already present in our population, that they weren't able to be treated in that way. It was so progressive. There was so much forward momentum. I don't understand what could have gone wrong. There was too much of it. So how do we get from the hope that is displayed in that film, this very progressive, holistic, long-term, impatient, communal healing, to what Foucault is railing against in the 60s, just you know, years later? How do we get there? What goes wrong between that kind of therapy that I think anyone would say seems to do these men so much good and what we end up with, that, that 1960s horror show? Well, first you have proofs of this working. Even in a propagandic film like this being suppressed, you have people looking for the easy way out. You have people not trying to fully understand what's happening. That's something we still see today that was very prevalent then. And this is when we start seeing VA officials start to encourage some other different types of treatment. Things like electroshock therapy. Things like prefrontal and transorbital lobotomies. But it seemed like it was getting better. Unfortunately, it seems like that was just a story. And we'll get to the rest of the story next week. Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com I like to listen.